Hey, it's Gary and Shannon. You're about to embark on yet another great adventure with the Gary and Shannon Show. A reminder, we want you to make sure that you look at the iHeart app and hit the follow button on the Gary and Shannon Show podcast so that you can get updates on what's going on with our podcast. Don't forget to share it as well. Get it? It's adventure music. Also, share it on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you have that opportunity, and tell a friend about what you're listening to when you listen to The Gary and Shannon Show. Good morning, apartment. Good morning, doorway. Morning wall. Morning ceiling. Good morning, floor. Ready to start the day. I'm a sneaky little stinker. Gary Hoffman. I hate that guy. I may not be Malibu Barbie. Shannon Farron. I've been through a lot, Barbie. But what are we, a team? No, no, no. We're a chemical mixture that makes chaos. Gary and Shannon. It's just so mind-blowing. Stop, stop. You're going to be very disappointed. Hello again. Oh, what's happening? It's a busy Monday. You know, are you are you all right? Are you ready for this? You shrink my weekend. I know. And I know you didn't mean to. I know. It was way but too much we- togetherness, wasn't it, is, it? It is weird when I see you on a Saturday and then go home and think, oh, that was a nice Friday. And then I, somewhere in there I missed a day. I know. And it's not like I lost time, like I had too much beer and then woke up and was like, what's, too, what's Tuesday? No, no, just seems, it's weird. It's just weird. That was delicious beer, though. I'm telling I've you. I've got to say. We, uh, we spent the uh, Saturday afternoon up at uh, Bravery Brewing in Lancaster because uh, Arlie Ermey was a part owner of that brewery, and they were doing sort of a memorial service for him on Saturday. We'll, a little bit later, next hour, we'll talk more about that. Uh, because it was it was really it was a great day. I cried like a baby. Uh, it was really good. And I heard really a joke well that I don't know if I can tell on the air. Oh, you did? Yeah. Did I hear it too? You may have. Oh, okay. <laughs> you may have. There's some good jokes said. Uh, but we begin with what happened over the weekend at the border. Steve Gregory uh, was there. And did you want to uh, play Steve's report? Sure, let's play let's Steve's report. Steve's the- they were denied entry into the U.S. because customs officials said they were maxed out and couldn't process any new applications. It began yesterday morning at Friendship Park. I was there when the refugees were greeted by a group of supporters who walked to the border from Los Angeles. The two groups were separated by the border fence, which goes out to the ocean. This man told me through an interpreter that he brought his family here because he didn't want to raise his kids in his violent home country. What would be the toughest part of the journey? The train ride was the toughest. Getting my family on board of the train was the toughest part. There's four of us, my wife and my two children. Where are you from and what is it you did for a living? I'm from El Salvador. I used to work for Pizza Hut. I was the delivery man. Is he hopeful that he's going to be able to get an asylum status or is he afraid that it may not happen? And what if it doesn't happen? This is God's job. Um, he's going to touch Trump's heart, so God's, God moves mountains. 
After the rally, the group returned to the shelter where they'd been sleeping for the last few days. After some lunch, they walked about a mile to the Chaparral pedestrian gate to surrender to U.S. officials. But what they didn't expect was U.S. customs agents weren't ready for them. This Mexican government official is explaining to the media that just a couple hours before the group's arrival at the pedestrian gate, federal authorities told Mexican immigration officials they were not going to accept any new asylum applicants. This caused some confusion and stress amongst the group. At one point, organizers and activists held hands and formed a circle. In the middle, the refugees, most of whom were sobbing. This 15-year-old girl told me the one-month journey has been especially hard on her, her brother and father, because somewhere during the train ride from Honduras, they were separated from her mother. Think she's going to get in? She believes in God and she thinks that he is the only one that has an answer and she thinks she's going to go through. The group started out about a thousand strong, but over the four weeks the group got smaller because, like this girl's story, some people were split from their family, some turned back, some chose to stay in Mexico, and after hearing the reality of the asylum process in the U.S., some changed their mind. U.S. Customs and Border officials said over the weekend a pregnant woman and four-year-old girl were among a group of refugees who chose to climb a border fence or crawl through a culvert to enter the country illegally. For now, the remaining refugees will stay at churches and shelters in Tijuana, and every day they say they'll try again until it's their turn to walk up to a U.S. Customs agent and say the words, I'm seeking asylum. All right, that's Steve Gregory, and he joins us now. Steve, uh, fantastic work. I've got to ask you specifically about what sort of infrastructure there is in TJ to handle these people. Well, it's interesting, Gary, because the infrastructure uh, is basically, and you guys have gone to foreign countries and walked through border control. That's the infrastructure. It's basically walking into a counter uh, you know, the area where the customs agents are waiting, and you have to walk through that, and then they have to go over to a side room if they seek asylum, and then it's an interview room, basically. And if you've seen those pedestrian gate entrances here in Mexico or in Mexicali or in Juarez, those, those are not big rooms. They're very small rooms, and the, and the detention areas are very small. How many so people are... Have, I'm sorry, Steve. How many people are we talking about here? Well, here's Here's sort of the, the sort of the misinformation right now. It started out as a thousand people. Then we heard reports that there were going to be two hundred flooding the gates yesterday. And at, at my best count, count in calculation, it was about fifty-five to sixty people, families, you know, men, women, children that were that entered the gate or tried to enter the gate yesterday, and ended up being stopped. And then they ended up creating a barricade of uh, these metal fences that they were able, those portable metal barricades, to set up an area on a concrete pad out in front of the gate. And that's where now, right now, they're in sleeping bags and tents that have been donated to them by people there in Tijuana. And that's where they're at until someone comes. How much legit refugee situation is this and how much of it is a political stunt? I mean, if we're talking, oh, there's going to be a thousand people and it turns out to be 55, to me that seems more of a, a, a stunt, if anything. Well, Shannon, I don't have that answer because I don't know. And in my interviews with the folks yesterday, some from El Salvador, some from Honduras, 
Um, here's the interesting thing. They all seem to have the same answer. And I mean, I mean, really, I mean, any, I use three different interpreters on purpose because I wanted to see how the answers were across the board. And everybody gave me the same answer. And that was, we, we live in fear. So when I push them on it, okay, so what do you mean you live in fear? Are you, have you been the victim of an attack or a robbery or, you know, whatever? I could never get them to tell me specifics about their fear. I couldn't, you know, so I didn't know um, what it is, what it is that they're they're in fear of, other than they live in fear. So, uh, presumably, all of these people have been coached or at least been uh, helped through the process. When they get in there and actually sit in front of a specially trained customs officer, you know, time will tell to whether or not they convince that officer that they truly lived in fear. Washington Post interviewed a guy who I guess was traveling with this caravan. Uh, one of the organizers, he said he was surprised, I'm sorry, shocked that the port of entry at San Ysidro would be at such capacity to not be able to receive any asylum speakers. We're not planning on moving until we talk further about the situation. Do you have any idea what they were expecting when they got here? Well, you know, they're, you know, when I say they, I'm talking about U.S. officials. They're monitoring Twitter and, and the news reports, just like everybody else, you know, and Here's the thing. What people don't understand is some of these refugee folks were turning themselves in within the last week. So some people have already come through and gotten into the process and have already been turned away. Others have tried to get across illegally, as you heard in my report. That happened over the weekend. So their system is all they're already they're already processing asylum seekers, but they're doing it. You know, they're doing it. Some of them are doing it legally. Some have done it illegally. So they're being processed as illegal entrants. So that in terms of those border officers and those customs agents, they're already busy. They're sort of maxed out. Now, the Department of Justice did send down additional staff, but that was those were judges and attorneys to handle the hearing part. But they still have to get through the interview and processing part. Do you know the uh, the stats when it comes to our immigration courts and how many people are uh, able to stay as asylum seekers? Well, not I don't know how many are able to stay. I mean, they'll keep building shelters, presumably. If you remember a few years ago, guys, when I covered the, the you know that first or I shouldn't say that first, but that very large wave of um, of families that had come up from Central America, and most of them had gone through Texas and Arizona. And they had to build the, – the federal government had to scramble and buy up old medical clinics and old elementary schools and convert them into dormitories to accommodate all of the families. So we don't have a cap on the number of people that we're going to be able to accommodate that are waiting for a hearing. But at last count, it's over 200,000 people are waiting for some sort of a hearing. Another 200,000 are in the system, and the average wait right now for a hearing in front of a judge is two years. So these people, I don't, how long did this travel take? How long did this caravan take? About a month. So it it was about a month. A, about a month from the southern part of Mexico up the spine of Mexico to get to the border with this many, you know, 50-ish people left. And now those who, even if they do go through the process of seeking asylum, stand the real, very real possibility that they, if they're with their families, would be separated for a year or two while the process plays out. Correct. And that's and that's one of the reasons, Gary, that some of the families opted not to go through with it when they found out about the separation of the families. Now, 
Listen, a lot of these people, and again, you know, we've been covering this now for quite some time, and that's a lot of misinformation that goes on down in Central America. And some of that propaganda was actually put out there by MS-13 and other cartels because they're encouraging some of these families to come up because they want to send some of their members of the gangs up through, up through here, too, because when you arrive with no papers and you're a, you're a 20-year-old man and you claim to be a 15-year-old boy, they can't argue with you because you have no paperwork to substantiate that claim one way or another, and they have to process you at the age you said you are. So now you've got you know someone who comes up at 20 years old who's a gang member, for instance, and these are these are just some of the examples, and not all the examples, but that's one of the reasons why there's a lot of misinformation about there. Come on up here to America. Come on up to the United States. The red carpet's there. There'll be a little tray with some champagne on it when you come in. We'll welcome you. There'll be a marching band. That's kind of what they're led to believe down there. And I'm, I'm using a very you know embellished illustration, but. I mean, they're they're told that it's so simple to do. And then as they were getting closer and closer to the border, they started to get the realization. People started telling them, you know, it's not as easy as you've been told. And when you get here, you're going to have to split up your family because they're not co-ed dorms. You're going to have, you know, all the men have to stay in one, kids stay in another, women stay in another. In some instances, women and children stay in another. Hey, Steve, can can you hang on uh, through the break for us? Of course. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I also want to talk about the... um, Woman in the L.A. Times today, a psychologist, uh, local psychologist, talked about uh, maybe this is a proof of repeating some ugly history. We'll get into that when we come back. Is this the the uh, the St. Louis? I think is what it was yes. called, the cruise ship. Okay. And a thousand dollars. All of that is coming up next on the Gary and Shannon Show. On this Monday, April 30th, back to see Gregory just one second. First, some business to attend to. We have $1,000 to give away. Your shot at $1,000 now. Text the keyword WIN to 200-200. You'll get a text confirming entry plus iHeartRadio info. Standard data and messaging rates apply. That's WIN to 200-200. Got to make sure you answer that phone if they call you. uh, Because if you don't answer, they'll move on to somebody who will and give them $1,000. Well, uh, the L.A. Times says that American immigration courts last year turned away about 62 percent of all asylum seekers. The fifth year that that denial rate rose. Um, Judges not very sympathetic to Central Americans. Uh, Only one out of every four Central Americans seeking asylum was allowed to remain in the United States. In the L.A. Times today, uh, they talked to a woman named Margaret Ellman, a retired uh, psychologist And she was there and she said she was there because she was worried um, that the United States was repeating an ugly history. And she held up the arrival in 1939 of the ocean liner, the St. Louis. On board were 937 mostly Jewish passengers trying to um, seek refuge in Miami. American authorities turned the boat around back to Europe where more than a quarter of those people would die in the Holocaust. And was that one of the um, one of the arguments that you heard, Steve, or one of the themes that we could be repeating some sort of ugly history in, 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 the, in the way that, hey, we feel bad for you. God, it must suck to live there and to live in fear or whatever you're dealing with, but we don't want it to be our problem. 
Well, I didn't hear it necessarily yesterday, Shannon, but I, I have heard it from critics while I've been covering the story throughout the, you know, the last couple months when I was down here for the border wall um, uh, event. And I hear people talking about that. And when this first came out about the caravan, I heard critics telling, telling me about that. And I would get emails from organizations that are already saying, listen, you know, uh, the president is right. We have to shut down the country. We have to redo the immigration system. But I didn't hear that necessarily. Yesterday, it was really there were no counter protesters at all um, on either side of the fence. And, you know, it, it was all about hope and and, you know, prosperity yesterday, really, until they got to the gate. And here's the interesting thing. You know, someone had asked me that earlier. Well, wait a minute. President Trump already said they weren't going to be allowed in. Weren't they expecting that when they got to the the border yesterday? And it's like, well, no, not necessarily. President Trump was speaking rhetorically because we still have a system in place to allow asylum seekers to come across. But in this case yesterday, everything was a green light for these folks until about two hours before the group got to the gate. That's when the group showed up. And that's when the Mexican official came out and said, listen, the United States is not accepting you, which means we can't let you go through our side until the U.S. opens up their side to you. And that caught them all by surprise. They were not expecting that yesterday. And that's what was sort of interesting about the process. And then come to find out through sources, it's because they've already had asylum seekers in the last week, and then they have those that tried to cross illegally, on top of all the folks that are still trying to get in illegally on a regular basis. So they, they said the system was overwhelmed. Is there anything happening today that could break any of this logjam? No, and as of a few few minutes ago, I checked before going on with you guys just to see where we're at, and uh, they were at that. Uh, officials were now saying that they were going to accept twenty people. They were going to allow twenty people to come in, but at last I checked, those twenty people had not been allowed in yet, and they had been waiting there since um, late last night when the, some officials came out and said we will accept uh, tw- the first twenty people, and so. The organizers put these 20 folks together, including a group of transgendered and gay people from Central America. And uh, that I was trying to talk to that group yesterday because I know sexual persecution is is a potential reason for being granted asylum and a persecution based on sexual orientation. And I couldn't get them to talk to me yesterday through the interpreter. So, But apparently I'm told they're going to be among the first group of people the organizers are going to let in as soon as they open the gate. Steve, thank you. If anything changes, let us know. You got it, guys. I mean, call us first, really. (laughs) Even when you're not on the air? Yeah, absolutely. We'll come back in and throw whoever is on the air out of here. (laughs) I'd love to see that. I sure would. (laughs) Steve, thank you. Guys, take care now. Be good. Good to hear you. Steve Gregory down there in Tijuana. Uh, We'll come back because I have to – there's a humanitarian crisis that I think people ignore in this situation that nobody wants to talk about. Um, We'll get into that. We also have a little bit of that White House correspondence dinner from Saturday night. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. There's a lot going on with it. I just didn't think she was very funny. I think she was drunk. Well, you'd kind of have to be. You know, there's something uh, uniquely cruel about women going after women – And I think that's what struck such a big chord over the weekend. And it wasn't about Democrats and Republicans entirely. It's just when women go after women, it hits us like viscerally. Gary and Shannon will continue just a moment.
Gary and Shannon. Uh, we'll get to this White House Correspondents' Dinner thing in just a second. Just to follow up on what Steve was talking about, this caravan that came through and ended up just south of the border there in Tijuana started out, what we, you know, a thousand strong, right? And that's when the president started tweeting about it and people started losing their minds. Let's not forget that the Mexican government sent at least 400 people uh, home. The Mexican government weeded through them and immediately cut their numbers by 40 percent because they didn't have the right travel documents. They didn't meet the criteria that the Mexican government sets for groups like this to make their way through Mexico. So let's just instead of saying that the United States is the big meanie in all of this, let's not forget that Mexico has its own rules that they had to follow. And some of them didn't and got sent home. The other thing is, I, I feel like there's a, you know, I regardless of where you come down on the importance of immigration for this country. Yes, we are all immigrants. Yes. I mean, that's a that's a trite way to put it. But I feel like if you don't have a clear message out there for anyone coming to the United States, whether they come through the southern border, they come through JFK Airport, they come through Bellingham, Washington – if you don't have a clear message out there about the process and the things that we require of you to come into this country, then we we run the risk of creating our own humanitarian crisis. It sucks for these dozens of people who are now stuck in Tijuana wishing that they could come to the United States. But it seems to me like they were never clear about what the asylum process is in the United States. Well, all they knew, and Steve uh, reiterated this, is that all you need to say is you're living in fear. And that's it. That's where the bar is when you're seeking asylum. And that should be good enough, it, it, history will will tell you. But at this point of t- in time, is it? It's not. Well, it's the, there not. are so many places in this world that are really screwed up places to live in, you know, Um and we are so damn fortunate for being born in this place in this point in time. Absolutely. Um, but what what is going to be the process in the future when you're talking about Syria? You know, you're talking about people that, that do live in fear every day, but yet don't have the documentation needed. We don't know the, the chain of custody. We don't know if, if you're here for, for harm or for, for refugee sake. There needs to be a clear set of rules as we yeah. move forward, more than um, living in fear. And absolutely, you want to help everybody. But, yeah, what's it going to be? And it seems like it's so arbitrary when it comes down to the immig- immigration courts and their protocol for, for who they let in and why. And if you're talking about somebody, let's assume somebody gets through the door, finger quotes, the door, and they can actually have an asylum hearing scheduled. That's a year, 18 months, two right. years down the road. In the meantime, they're living in detention. There's a chance that they get let out of detention and then are still sort of just living in this sort of vast wasteland of not knowing what their future holds. And then they never show up for their court date, so they immediately become uh, illegal in the United States. And they they live in fear again. Because you can't, I mean, and then to follow that one, when you put that in the context of the sanctuary laws that we now have in place in the state of California, there are neighborhoods that have become sort of the no-go zones that we saw in Europe for a long time. Uh, the no-go zones for law enforcement in, in California, in California, no-go zones for law enforcement because there is no one there who is going to talk to police. There is no one there who's going to give up the bad guys for fear of their own uh, immigration status. And that's a terrifying thing. Imagine you're from Honduras, you're from El Salvador, you're some, from some 
drug cartel racked country and you come all the way to the United States, you get frustrated with the asylum process because it takes so damn long. And then you end up saying, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to live here illegally like millions of other people do and I'm going to take my chances. But you live in a neighborhood where no one wants to go to the police. And you're right back in El Salvador. You're right back in Honduras where murders, rapes, uh, drug cartels rule your neighborhood. Crime rule the streets. Right. Yeah. So what did you, what did you gain by this? It's, uh, and the idea that a strong immigration policy is racist or that it's hurtful or that it's mean, it doesn't make sense to me. It's short-sighted. Because you don't you don't have it playing out. You don't have uh, that whole scenario playing out in your head. You just want to take in people and help them. And I get that. But then what? And that's there's got to be some follow through. That's not even to mention the amount of drugs that come through the southern border, the opioid crisis that's fueled by drugs that come across the southern border. That's not to mention the sex trafficking and the victimization that goes on about the drug crisis. Did you see that video Jane Wells shared about uh, the BART station? In, oh, at yeah. the Civic Center? Oh, my gosh. Holy Jesus, Mary and Joseph. But again. I mean, that looks like third, bad third world stuff. Like, that looks like a foreign country I would never go to because I'd be terrified of the poverty and the drugs. And it's not. It's San Francisco. It's the Civic Center BART station in San Francisco. And there are people shooting up in the corridors. Because people want to legislate with feelings. We don't want anybody to feel bad. We don't want anybody to feel like they're an addict. We don't want anybody to feel like uh, they have to do drugs somewhere but else. But again, the follow through, you've got to have a follow through if you're going to legislate on feelings. It's just, it's a frustrating world we live in. Why are we doing this? I don't know, but you know what I don't want to listen to is uh, any of that White House correspondence dinner. I have to do I just one. I can't stand her voice, so it's really it's it's really unfortunate. And she mispronounces correspondence right off the bat. <laughs> I, I forget how she Did says you? it, but it made me believe that. I mean, she slurred her way through the word and completely butchered it. And I and that's when I'm like, ah, she's probably she probably was, had a she couple cocktails tripping over those fake eyelashes is what she was doing. Did you see? Did you even know who Michelle Wolf was? No. Okay, I've not seen The Daily Show a lot. I used to watch it more when John Stewart was on it. Yes. I like Trevor Noah. I just I don't watch it as much as I. Yeah, used I kind of stopped watching after Stewart left. Um, but I guess she's a correspondent for for The Daily Show and has something of a stand up career. But this was the this was the worst I think I've seen. Not because I I was offended by it. I mean, no, no, no. I mean, there's plenty of material there. She just. Went off on the wrong vein yeah. into it. Here's, uh, it wasn't of, funny. It was just kind of mean. And uh, there's a, so much you can do if you want to make fun of this administration and the people attached to it. Well, she did I it think, the wrong way. I think I know what my problem was with it. But here's here's what she said about Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Uh, let me turn this up for just a second. Um, the press secretary, White House press secretary, was sitting two seats away from the podium. I actually really like Sarah. I think. Oh my! Okay. I, see, that's why I didn't want to play it because <laughs> I'm gonna have to just. I'm gonna put my headphones down. And I'm gonna wait and I'm no, gonna. No, no, no! You're you're terrorizing uh, everybody else with this. All right, here it is. Twenty seconds. I actually really like Sarah. I think she's very resourceful. Like she burns facts and then she uses that ash to create a perfect smoky eye. Like, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's lies. It's probably lies. I did. Her, her, her tone, and, you know, if that joke was written down, it would have come off a hell of a lot better. I'll just say that. Because her tone and the way she's talking made her sound 
catty and uh I don't know. It just You know what's funny? It, it viscerally hit me like, what are, you, what are you doing? And then she says, oh, what's the Uncle Tom for white women that disappoint right. other white women? Oh, it's Ann Coulter. I didn't like any of that, Joe. I, I am not an Ann Coulter fan at all, uh, and and I get what she's trying to do, but it just came across mean. You know, one of the things that I have enjoyed about the White House Correspondents' Dinner over the years is that it appears to be, and not always, it appears to be smart humor. Yeah, it's like, always you, smart. It's clever. Yeah, you the have Obama's... to know what's going on in the world to Absolutely. get the joke. Absolutely. And this was just, it seemed so Bottom of the brow. barrel. Yes. Thank you. Which low is brow. frustrating because my, my wife said, for example, that joke, that wasn't really a bag on how she looks. I mean, it wasn't a bag because, no. in fact, it was a compliment on her makeup and her perfect smoky eye. But it was just like a, a dig at somebody who, first of all, had the balls to show up. Exactly. You know, and not that that means that she doesn't get to be targeted because she does. Sure. Everybody in the room does. I mean, she also did jokes about Rachel Maddow. She did jokes about Jake Tapper. And she did jokes about Jim Acosta. I mean, it's not like she only did jokes about the Trump uh, administration, but it would just seem low brow. Yeah. And that's too bad. Because You're right. Even. Oh. The White House Correspondents Association put the president, Margaret Talev, put out a statement. And she said, um, I have heard from members expressing dismay with the entertainer's monologue and concerns about how it reflects on our mission. Uh, the president and I recognize the president of the um, or the incoming president of the White House Correspondents recognize these concerns and are committed to hearing from members on your views on the format of the dinner going forward. Um, we didn't want to divide people. The entertainer's monologue was not in the spirit of that mission. No, here, here's one where she doesn't do Democrats any favors. Here's a quote. Uh, this is about Mike Pence. He thinks abortion is murder, which, first of all, don't knock it till you try it. And when you do try it, really knock it. You know, you got to get that baby out of there. What an there's, idiot. There's nothing funnier than jokes what about an abortion. idiot. She followed that up with two jokes about rape and one about the September 11th. You know, one of the attacks. misconceptions about Democrats, oh, they love abortion, right? It's like nobody loves abortion, all right? And she had to go and make that joke. Yeah. It's, what are you doing? Classless. Yeah. But, hey, now we know who she is. So there's that. Blake almost didn't make it to the yeah, weekend. Yeah, Blake almost died on the freeway. When we come back, we'll tell you why Blake has a little less of himself and he's got holes they, in his stomach. they took something and they gave him hey something. can we take a picture of your scars and put it on uh, instagram um yeah if you want to all right we'll have to have is that bad uni- taste no, is, I that, think it's perfect. is that low brow we, if we have unicorns pointing to his out uh his problems yes his problems his scars done gary and shannon will continue Somebody wrote and said that that we are acting like snowflakes because we can't take a joke. That's the thing is I got all the jokes. It wasn't I wasn't again, I wasn't offended by them because that's what you do at the White House Correspondents Dinner is you 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 go after everybody. It was just that it it didn't seem it didn't seem like the normal um, caliber of humor. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't as smart as it usually is in that venue and 
That's, I just, I just, I, I just found her to be unlikable, I guess, and it's just a personal taste thing. So I do not want to listen to her speak for longer than four seconds. She, I want to say, played lacrosse at something like that. She played. She went to William and Mary, the same place that James Comey went to school. Okay. Um, and I want to say she was a lacrosse player. She was, uh, or track and field. That's what it was. And it was interesting because when I saw her, I thought. She's the funny, she's the funny, like, team clown on whatever sports team she was on. And that was before I knew who the hell she was. But it makes sense now. I don't know why I thought that, but it seemed like, I, I don't know. That was all. That was the end of my story. You mean when you saw her, you thought that she'd be an athlete, like the funny? No. Oh. I mean, not. I mean, it wasn't just that, that she looked like an athlete. It was just that she struck me as somebody I would remember, like that personality I remember oh, I see. from high school and college. So anyway. Well, uh, Blake had some some scary moments. Where we left Blake on Friday, uh, he, he, he was had, complaining again. Gary thought God. he had to go to the bathroom because uh, he was having his stomach well, hurt. He I came in and he went like this. Oh. Now, I am exaggerating a little bit, but he went, oh. I just thought and that he, he was holding like yeah. his the right rib cage. I didn't see him do that. I just walked in when you guys were talking about how Blake had to go to the bathroom. It hurt right down the middle, right behind my belly button. Yeah. So the first diagnosis was endometriosis. Yes, that was um, a, <laughs> that was my hasty diagnosis. A very hasty. Uh, was this like when I gave myself kidney disease? Close, but, but you, mine's a but little that's less a possibility. Likely. I mean, yeah. you yeah. could potentially have. Kidney disease. I My brother thought very it might have been unlikely, pregnant. Also not likely, but no. probably as likely as endometriosis. A little less so likely, actually. Blake's so I, on the way home. Yes. And he passes out behind the wheel. That did happen, yes. I was. So anybody eastbound on the 210 who saw the big pickup truck rolling East across Pasadena, like yeah. four lanes. Yeah. That's weird. Why is that guy going so fast? Uh, that was Blake. I'm pretty sure I went actually really slow. I think I just slowly drifted across. Well, you're very lucky, yeah. as are the people that you almost killed. Yeah. Yeah. But you pulled over. I who, did. Who, I was, got, who rolled up to you? You were on the phone with somebody. I was on the was... phone with a nurse friend of ours because yeah. I wasn't feeling good. And I started passing out, which I've passed out a few times. Because you have low blood, uh, low blood pressure. Yeah. yeah. I have low, my blood pressure runs kind of low. When I don't feel good, it just drops real low and I pass out. So I knew it was going down. I was like, uh-oh. She's like, you need to pull over. I got one lane, mildly lucid. And then I went out. <laughs> like, everything's black. And the next thing I know, I am arriving at the shoulder. I very consciously did not hit the wall because I would have been very upset if I hit the wall. In your and, relatively new truck. Yes, in my new bad. truck. So I stopped. I put it in park. Her husband's sheriff, so he was talking to the sheriff, and he was getting him out there, and he was telling him to run code three and all that. And ambulance shows up, and I'm still – I can't really see anything. I'm starting to come back around a little bit. They're talking to me, and I'm whatever, and talking to me for a few minutes, and I kind of come back around. They throw me in an ambulance. Five hours later, they – uh Put three holes in my stomach and took out my appendix. Do you know which hole they took it out of? Um, not the top one, because the top one's for the scope. Did you keep it? No, I asked if I could, and they said no. They did said they had to send it to pathology to make sure there was nothing else fancy, funky with it. Did you name it? No. No. I, I never was much cognizant of its um, <laughs> being there. So it would have really hurt my feelings if I, you know, named him it and then it had to leave me. So True. I didn't want to add that heartbreak to uh, the already losing an organ part of me. Well, we'll, we'll post some, uh, Blake scars because yeah. hits. 
Uh, <laughs> I also have pictures of him in the hospital. Okay. Yeah. Somebody somebody took a black and white photo or turned a photo yeah. of yourself in the he, hospital my, room. My, one of my friends, and... my one guy from my Bible study got word that I was in there. And then everybody from the entire Bible study had word that I was in there. And someone wanted a selfie and they quickly put an overlay of hashtag or they put we are all hashtag Blake Strong. No, and we are not. It quickly uh, they were changing it was an their appendix. Prof- it wasn't a terrorist attack. <laughs> they were changing their profile pictures. And like it was it spread around our church. Pretty That's like quick. a legit Jesus take the wheel story, though, it, isn't it? Don't yeah. don't you wish, though, then you had something more dramatic than appendicitis? Not saying it didn't hurt. And no, it wasn't I'm pretty surgery, sure I had but... enough drama to most things where if it was more dramatic, it would have been world would have imploded kind of thing. All right, coming up next, uh, Blake's pictures will be posted. And how many unsolved murders do we have floating around California? We'll talk about it next on Gary and Shannon. You got a little, you can use much more. Somebody just sent us the it's going to be May Justin Timberlake picture, you know, it's going to be me. Oh, <laughs> uh, we're going to have to deal with sync all day. I don't know what. Uh, are we going to have to pick our favorite sync songs? Yes, I okay. think we might. I already have mine voted. I have mine too. Okay. Everybody keep thinking about it. Blake, you think about, okay, first of all, Blake. Justin Timberlake was in a group before he went solo. Kind of like um kind of like Paul McCartney was in a group before you're gonna, he went solo. Oh, you're going to explain things to Blake using the Beatles? Wait, is it That's like a one a direction point. type thing? No, no. How about that? Oh, it's boy. like like Beyonce Zane, like was Zane? In a group. Yes. Yes. What about like Zane? He was in a group before he was Zane. And then right. he left and everyone's heart broke. Right. I remember that. I remember that day. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of well, tissues. That's mm-hmm. very similar to NSYNC. Just a But Zane has before. yet to materialize the way Justin Timber like blasted out of the NSYNC. Right. Yeah. Wow. What? You're drooling a little bit. No, I'm not. So, I'm not into uh, that. So JT, before <laughs> the hair, that, that is. hair alone. The pubic hair? Wow. What? That's not what it is? What are you talking about? I want to be out of this bit now. I know what sync is. Thank you. <laughs> Good call, Blake. Blake hit eject. Uh, Do we so... have a Blake surgery pictures? Yeah, I posted them up on the website. Excellent. All right. Okay. Uh, Michelle, you're going to have to think of your favorite NSYNC song, too. Oh, I there. have one, even okay. though I hate NSYNC. Oh, okay. Excellent. There's one song. I it's, a hard, it's a hard decision nope. to make no, between Bye 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 and It's Gonna Be Me. Seriously? It's not hard. Oh, really? Yeah. Yours is Bye Bye Bye, no, then. No, it's neither one of those. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I know what you like. You what? like that uh, Tearing Up My Heart song. No. Yeah, that speaks to you. <laughs> no, it does not. Here we go. Last week, we were just head over heels uh, in love with the story of the arrest in the Golden State Killer case. For good reason. There's so much stuff that happens that goes on uh, work-wise for decades to put a guy behind bars who hadn't killed, it appears, since 1986. And to put together the puzzle pieces that were scattered about the state of California to end in the arrest of Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. And he was living 
right back in the heart of all of this, up in Citrus Heights, near where the very first crimes were committed in nineteen in the mid-1970s. It raises a lot of questions, though, about how many serial killers are there or were there, perhaps, is probably a better way to put it because they don't tend to, uh, to act the same way these days. How many serial killer cases are there that have yet to be solved and... Is it only a matter of time before they are? Well, the 70s were really a, a heyday for serial killers. You know, you look at the the Zodiac Killer, who operated basically in Northern California, one of the most famous serial killers who yet who is yet to be caught. Depending on, upon who you ask, it seems like he's probably gone now. He's probably dead. But, you know, in the 70s and 80s, that was before DNA technology uh, exists as we know it today. And, in fact, we talked about it last week, about how uh, the Golden State Killer, Joe D'Angelo, appeared to stop killing in 1986. Now, he was a former police officer. He had a criminal justice degree. He knew what was going on with DNA technology and the ways that detectives were able to use it. And he knew that he'd probably have to stop if you if he wanted to live free and not be caught. He probably had a thought that somewhere down the line they'd be able to use DNA evidence from his crime scenes to then track him down, which they ended up doing using one of those ancestry DNA sites. But that was really a time when it was the wild, wild west of killing and it looks like California had a, a, a number of these unsolved crimes, these uh, number of murders throughout the 70s and 80s. The Zodiac Killer you mentioned in, in Northern California started in the 60s and 70s. And they're saying that the San Francisco Police Department at one point actually marked the Zodiac Killer case inactive. They had since reopened it. But it's also open. Imagine this. A case from the 60s and 70s is officially open in the cities of, in the city of Vallejo, in Napa County and Solano County, in fact, the California Department of Justice has an open case file for the Zodiac Killers and has had so since 1969. And you're talking about places all around southern, uh, northern California. There were a couple uh, in Riverside and Santa Barbara that may have been connected to that case, but that Zodiac Killer is really the big one in terms of unsolved cases here in California. It's interesting to watch this happen. I mean, uh, this was a guy, 72 years old, Joseph D'Angelo, who was making a roast at his home. And as as it was printed up in the uh, L.A. Times today, the past has caught up to retired killers as they engage in the most mundane activities. Because these guys are old now, right? They're, they're doing things like making a roast inside their home in Citrus Heights. Uh, the Grim Sleeper, of course, done in by that a partially eaten piece of pizza with his DNA on it. So who knows? We may, this may not be the last old guy that we're able to, to wrangle uh, using DNA technology. It is strange, though. That, I mean, the 60s and 70s, you referred to it almost as the heyday for these serial killers. If, for example, the Night Stalker tried his crime spree 10 years later, you know, instead of the mid-80s, he tried it in the mid-90s, they would have been able to identify him almost immediately. And the same thing with this guy, with the Grim, uh, well, the grim Sleeper, with the um, uh, California State Killer, Golden State Killer, because the DNA that was left at these crime scenes, the evidence that was left, he was very careful about things like fingerprints, hair, stuff like that, but the, he, because he knew that those would have been tools that could be used to track him down, he had no idea at the time that DNA was going to be an issue.
Captain Billy Hayes is in the LAPD's robbery homicide division. And when he was a young cop in the late 70s, forensic science consisted pretty much of blood typing and fingerprints. Uh, Hair comparisons were just beginning to be used. Analysts would eyeball a suspect's fingerprints against sample cards until they found a match. Now, I, this is now done in a computer in seconds. I was just going to say, and it's it's dramatized on TV. We see it all the time, right. right, where you see a little computer image of a thumbprint, and then thousands of images of other prints come up against it, and all of a sudden it matches automatically. That I mean, the idea that there were people doing this by eye, that's... Investigators couldn't do anything with DNA back then, but they did store it. Uh, They knew enough to store it in some cases in dry, cool conditions. But in other cases, DNA evidence was destroyed, worthless, uh, either deliberately or because it had degraded over time. In 1986, DNA analysis was used for the first time to solve a crime. And in 1986, the Golden State Killer killed probably for the last time. That is... No coincidence. When we come back, we'll talk more about this, including how many of these homicides actually go unsolved. And it may surprise you if you had to guess a number of, uh, say, a thousand homicides in California, how many of them are solved. The number may surprise you. We'll tell you where in this in the country they do a great job of solving almost all of the homicides that occur in that place. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. Gary and Shannon, with your chance right now at $1,000. Your shot at $1,000 now. Text the keyword money to 200-200. You'll get a text confirming entry plus iHeartRadio info. Standard data and messaging rates apply. That's money to 200-200. If you win, they'll call you. But you got to answer that phone to get the $1,000. Uh, if you don't win this hour, there is a chance next hour and, in fact, every hour through the first hour of the Conway Show at 7 o'clock tonight. We were talking about Joseph D'Angelo, the suspected Golden State killer rapist who has been taken into custody, 72 years old, inside the Sacramento County Main Jail right now, is in a cell by himself because of the notoriety of the case. According to jail records, no one has visited him so far. Uh, We know that he has three grown children, uh, daughters, we're told. He was placed on suicide watch as a precaution and has undergone a psychiatric evaluation. Of course, in court Friday, handcuffed to a wheelchair, he appeared dazed, delayed speech. Feeble. I don't think he could hear what the judge was saying. But investigators, including a guy who's worked the case for more than 20 years, Paul Holes, says it's all an act. Remember, this is somebody who probably threw off the profile that they were looking at uh, by by his behavior during the rapes and murders. He knew how to throw people off, whether it's mentioning a certain area or saying he was in the, the Air Force when he was in the Navy and the whole bit. I believe it is all part of his act. Investigators, in the meantime, are searching his home. They're looking for uh, class rings, earrings, dishes. Things were taken from these crime scenes, you know, 40 years ago. Many things were taken. They kept them, like we see in many of these cases, as trophies. Uh, they took out a bunch of uh, ammo and guns from his from his uh, his place there where he was living in Citrus Heights. Um, we've also, uh, we've seen a 
huge influx in the broadcast of TV shows about this case. Over the weekend, I mean, ever since the arrest was announced early last week, everybody that had done anything about the Golden State Killer has gone out of their way to put that thing back on the air. There was a four-part series, I want to say, on Discovery Channel that aired yesterday, and it was all about this case long ago. I think it was probably a 10-year-old documentary piece that they put together. But I recorded every single one of them because I was fascinated by, you know, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. If this is the guy and he's found guilty, what it is that we knew then and how these pieces point to this guy the whole way, even though very few people had him on the short list. I wonder if he watched the countless documentaries and unsolved mystery type shows that that were broadcast about him. So we were mentioning Michelle McNamara's book, All Be Gone in the Dark, which is all about the Golden State Killer. It's where the name Golden State Killer came from, the moniker. Patton Oswalt was uh, was her husband, Patton Oswalt, the stand-up comedian and actor. And when this happened, he was inundated with Twitter messages from people congratulating him or congratulating her through him, basically, because she passed away before the book was published. And one of the questions to him was, do you think this guy read Michelle's book? And Patton's response was, wouldn't it be amazing to go through his Amazon search history just to see? Yeah. Not that this 72-year-old guy is necessarily using Amazon to buy his books, but along those lines, wouldn't it be interesting to see if he was, if he knew that this was out there and that people were looking for him and he could watch this stuff sort of as a, uh, from a, a voyeuristic standpoint? Well, and... She before she wrote the book, Michelle ran True Crime. I think it was True Crime Daily. I forget what the name of her blog was. Um, no, True Crime Daily is a TV show. I, anyway, she where where people spent countless hours pouring through the evidence that was known about this case and the timelines and things. So there's a number of online communities that have been obsessed with with bringing this guy to justice, and you wonder if he uh, poked around in those. He had to. I mean, I just think the mentality that we know how serial killers operate, he had to do that sort of stuff. One of the stories that has come up is not just the number of uh, untested rape kits that exist throughout the state of California in all of this and the legislation that exists to try to expedite some of this stuff and try to get these things off the shelves and get some of these crimes solved because – I think a lot of people assume that there are crimes that are connected to this guy that have not yet been connected to him through evidence, but also the number of homicides that go unsolved at any given time. And it's an amazing number. I never would have thought that it was this high, the number that go unsolved. But in the state of California alone, they looked at the the Murder Accountability Project, looked at the highest number of reported homicides between 1980 and 2012, so that 22-year period, 32-year period, they said that there were 113,762 homicides in California between 1980 and 2012, uh, and that there were 65,864 clearances, which means the case is closed and usually someone is uh, convicted. It may be closed even though someone was in jail at the time for some other crime. So they didn't get charged again. But that rate for California over those 32 years, 58 percent, 58 percent of the homicides that were that occurred 
ended up in prosecution or a closed case to the point where the detectives knew that they had the right person. It's fallen quite a bit. In 1965, the clearance rate was 91 percent. A couple of years ago, 59 percent. That's why, you know, it, when when people talk about uh, the unfair uh, justice system, it's really hard to get somebody in there. It's really hard to get somebody to the state of to the the phase of the prosecution phase. The there are it's not by accident, right? (laughs) There are some states that do have good good numbers in terms of closing murder cases. Um, Wyoming has an eighty seven percent closure rate of of the reported homicides. Eighty seven percent of them were cleared uh, in that thirty two years. There's four people who live there. That's part of it. Maine is another one. Population not, is relatively low. It's, it's not too Dick, cold to kill it's people. It's not Dave. It's not Buck. It must be Brian. Everybody knew it was Brian. He was a bad apple. But then there are places like it's uh, Michigan has a rate under 50%. It's at 47%. This one is going to blow you away. The lowest closure rate when it comes to homicides in this state, just under 16%. This state recorded 34,623 homicides between 1980 and 2012, and 5,500 of them were solved. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the beautiful state of Illinois. Well, 16% of homicides closed in that state. Well, that's because of of the, uh, the the gang wars going on. In Chicago. Yeah. That's an amazing number. You can't get anyone to testify no in, one in is, those cases. That's the problem. And no one is close to no, that. Nobody saw anything. That's... I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? The, the murder happened in your apartment. Well, I don't. I didn't see anything. Ma'am, you're straddling the body right now as we're talking to you. Did you not see the dead body right there? Coming up next, ever go swimming at the Rose Bowl Aquatic Center? Never again. Never again. Listen to uh, how defense attorneys uh, don't... Listen to how they shouldn't sleep at night when you listen to how they're defending the Rose Bowl Aquatic Center against uh, a little a little boy who was molested. Gary and Shanna will continue in just a moment. Gary and Shannon, top of the hour, we're going to get into uh, all of our trending stories, including one locally just over the hill from us, in fact, uh, on Hollywood Boulevard, NSYNC is getting their star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame today. So all the guys are going to be there. Justin. You do not know all And the names. rest of them. Oh, okay. I don't. <laughs> that was my joke. Well, jo- there's no, uh, Joey. Joey uh, Lance. And Lance. I thought he was a Backstreet Boy. Oh, yeah, he is. No, wrong. Okay. Wow. (laughs) You just... Let's just show you how much I know about boy bands. Can you see how proud of herself she is right now? (laughs) I made a joke. I don't know what you're talking about. Michelle Wolf there. I make jokes. I make jokes. Oh, that's pretty good. Thank you. I've saved Justin's head in my freezer. Ah! That is the best By the way, see something, say something on that lady. Yeah, so she... uh, Someone needs to drop a dime on that She got a a NSYNC uh, birthday cake from from the Dairy Queen. (laughs) 
and uh, I've saved Justin's head in my freezer. Okay. Okay. Anyway, we'll get into that at 12 o'clock hour. There is a lawsuit locally uh, against the Rose Bowl Aquatic Center. Michelle says this used to be a nice place to go swimming, and then it turned into uh, gamey. That's why I stopped swimming there. I used to swim there three or four times a week. Yeah, too many see something, say something. Yeah, weird people. Well, this lawsuit alleges that the Rose Bowl Aquatic Center has insufficient security and protocols to protect children in its care. This stems from an 11-year-old boy who was repeatedly molested there as a, as a result of their lack of security. The Aquatic Center has tried to get the case tossed out. Um, the trial is scheduled for later, for later in May. But according to uh, the Roseball Aquatic Center and its lawyers, these are their arguments. Well, it's not a youth center, so its employees don't have a duty to re- report suspected molestation. The lawyers also say... Well, hold on, say that again. Say that slowly, because I think that's important. It's not a youth center, so the employees are not um, mandated reporters, I guess you could say. They don't have a duty to report suspected molestation. Okay. Well, go I think as humans, we have a duty to rep- report that, no yeah. matter where we are. Yes. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in your own home, if you're in a freaking pennies, it... No matter where you are, if you think that there's somebody that's being molested, a kid that's being molested, as a human, you're a mandated reporter. But legally, no. The lawyers also say that the aquatic center was not negligent and could not have anticipated the alleged harm. Apparently, that's under the umbrella of negligence. To be negligent, you have to have uh, anticipated something bad was going to happen. And then ignored it. Right. And the lawyers also say that the aquatic center only owed the boy security during swim practice itself, not before or after. So if the boy was uh, molested on his way to the pool while at the aquatic center, that's not their problem. If he was molested outside of the pool on his way to the locker room or whatever, eh, not their problem. It's all about semantics, about what the aquatic center is responsible for. And maybe the part that's the grossest part is that there are going to be no changes that could prevent this from happening again. They're not going to make any changes to the aquatic center. Why? Probably because making a change shows that they know they were in the wrong. So this is the case. 57-year-old, then 57-year-old Leslie Diddert, a frequent patron of the aquatic center, was apparently abusing a young boy who was 11 at the time. The boy's mother first became aware that something was wrong back in May, three years ago, May of 2015. She realized that her son was taking longer than usual in the dressing room. Parents have, parents have a sixth sense. I don't, it's beyond that. Everybody has sort of enough of a sixth sense when it comes to stuff that goes wrong. Everybody knows when something's yeah. going wrong. He was taking longer than usual in the dressing room. And she asked him, what what took you so long? What's going on? He finally admitted to her that this guy, 57-year-old Leslie Diddert, had been touching him inappropriately. So mom does what everyone should do. She contacts the Rose Bowl Aquatic Center staff. They call the police. This guy was arrested, but he was released because the DA's office felt like it didn't have enough at that point for a criminal filing. 
according to the separate filing in the lawsuit, they said that this guy, by the way, fled the country shortly after the allegations. He was charged with a couple counts of unauthorized possession of a machine gun, a couple counts of possession of an assault weapon. So he's already in trouble. The arrest warrant is still out for this guy. But those violations occurred a couple days, uh, one day after the aquatic staff called police to report the boy's accusations. This was not the first. The boy later told the police in interviews there was repeated abuse. This guy was fondling the boy. This guy was forcing the boy to fondle him. There was some coerced oral copulation. He told police that he didn't come forward earlier because he was mentally manipulated and shamed by this molester in this case. So according to um, the Aquatic Center, um, the position is, this is through the family's lawyer, so I guess you could say there's some bias to it, but the position is parents are responsible for whatever happens to their children at the facilities. Like you said, they are only in charge of security during swim practice itself, not before and after. What do you think the chances are going uh, going to be that while you're in a pool with, I don't know how many, 50, 60 other kids, that a swim coach is going to molest you in front of 120 other eyes? Slim. But in the caverns and and hallways of a locker room it's going to be much more likely so that's where the majority of the security problem uh, the majority of the security apparatus should be just in terms of not allowing there to be any closed spaces where this could be going on and no one else could be seeing it the complaint points to a page on the Aquatic Center website that says multiple guards constantly monitor the pools and facilities, which the lawyer says was not the case while this kid was being molested. In trying to get the case dismissed, the Aquatic Center is arguing that the guards actually means lifeguards and that center staff only have to protect the boy during the swim practices, not before or after. This is disgusting. Yeah. I, that, that's the part that I take most issue with. Oh, we'll take care of him as swim practice, but not on our grounds yeah. before or after. So when he jumps in the pool the first time, he's under our watch. When he gets out, he's off the clock. What this is is it's a huge anti-advertisement for going anywhere near the Rose Bowl Aquatic Center. Yep. And they know that. If that's, if that's going to be their, uh, their approach to safety, eh, you're on your own. Hey, but the problem is, I don't know if they were expecting the story like this to get out, that they were trying to dismiss this case saying it's more the kid's fault than anybody else's, or that the, yeah. for somehow the mother is now responsible right. for the kid's security while he's in the boys' locker room. Yeah. It's insanity. All right, we'll come back, uh, and we'll talk about this uh, very cool ceremony that Shannon and I got to got to witness on Saturday for R. Lee Ermey, uh, the gunny. We'll talk about that when we come back. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. Darkness right in front of me, oh, it's calling out and I won't walk away. I would always open up the door, always looking out behind the walls. Want to see it all, give me more. I was always up to making changes, walking down the street, meeting strangers, flipping through my life. Well, I, I cried. You cry? 
No, you, you but don't, I, don't I'll tell you when I was the closest. You felt emotions. Oh, yeah. Um, over the weekend, la- last week, we uh, told you about the death of uh, Arlie Ermey. Everybody knows him from uh, a number of roles in movies and TV shows, etc. Uh, my kids knew him from the voices of Sarge in Toy Story. Oh, you never, you never played a FMJ for your kids? Well, actually, my daughter did walk in. On Saturday afternoon, I did for my wife because she couldn't remember the... I don't know if she'd ever seen the whole movie, but even the first six minutes of Full Metal Jacket oh, yeah. where he's in there. I didn't know they stacked us that high. Yeah. I mean, just classic, classic face, voice, lines, everything. And, and Arlie Ermey passed away a little while ago, a week and a half ago or so. We had a memorial. They had a memorial up there at Bravery Brewing in Lancaster. First time I've been up to Lancaster for fun. I mean, I I had to go there a couple times for reporting stuff, but what a great group of people that were there to celebrate his life. And he was a part owner of the brewery, which is part of the reason. I mean, he was basically golfing friends with Bart, who opened the brewery uh, seven years ago now. And one of the things that they have on a permanent display there is... The uniform that Arlie Ermey wore in that opening scene from Full Metal Jacket. It's behind a glass case and everything. In fact, we took a picture with it with Bart and his wife, Sandra. Brian Suits was there. Um, and we put it up on our social media so you can go check it out. But it was a full dose of America, wasn't it? It was. Uh, uh, met so many great veterans out there on Saturday. And uh, you know, one of the um, a couple of things struck me. Uh, one of the speakers there w- did have Lee as his drill sergeant drill when Lee yeah. was when when Lee was 21 and he said that the stuff in full metal jacket was sanitized compared to how he was <laughs> as a drill instructor but at the same time he's the guy who was talking when I walked in he okay. but he also said um you never doubted whether or not he cared about you, whether he cared about the Marine Corps, whether he cared about your career in the Marine Corps. Right. He just wanted to make sure that you were going to be the best Marine that you could be. People also talked about how this was one of those guys that made you feel like you were the most important person in the room, you know, when he's talking to you. You know, those people that, like, really listen and they care and they're not just, like, looking behind you to find out who the more important person is. Also, my other favorite nugget was ABBA. ABBA was his favorite band. Can you guys believe that? Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. Yeah. Favorite band. ABBA. ABBA. So there was one point in the uh, in the ceremony. They had uh, a bunch of different speakers there. Uh, Lee's brother was there. Lee's brother Jack was there. Uh, Lee's granddaughter, uh, Rosie, was there, 15 yeah. years old, and talked about her grandfather. Um, and... Which were, I mean, just she was great. She's, great stories. One of her, her, one of the nuggets in her uh, talk was about. Um, I, I hadn't. See, he didn't yell at me except for one time, and I'll tell you this: never slam that man's <laughs> car door. Uh, the one that got me though, they had an honor guard that was there. Um, students, local high school students, full uniform, an honor guard that was standing next to the uniform. And uh, they would change out every couple of minutes. They also had uh, young Marines. I don't know the exact name of the club, but a young Marine group from somewhere up in the Antelope Valley there that did the flag presentation. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever been to a military funeral where they present the flag to the widow or to the surviving members of the family. That's when your heart is ripped from your chest. Add to that the fact that these are high school kids that have been practicing the unfolding of the American flag, the presentation, and then the refolding. And I mean, it's 
crisp folding. It's not just a slapdash thing. And there was not a there was not a sound. And this is a this is a packed. It's a big you know industrial center. So there's probably 400 people. Don't yes. listen to what I'm saying, Fire Marshal Bill. There's probably 400 people in this building. Not one of them is breathing while this flag presentation is going on. And it took a few minutes, like five or six minutes, for them to unfold it, to fold it back up. And then the lead uh, student uh, is has his arms crossed in front of him, carrying the flag, and presents it to Lee's widow. And he says, I don't even know what he says, but he says something, and it's a scripted thing, I believe. And then, yeah. I mean, she, and then that, it's, that was the part where, because not, not one person was breathing. It was so quiet in there. That's a tight community there. Yeah. You know, it, you, sometimes you forget that there are tight communities that exist in Southern California or elsewhere, you know. Um, and, and there is still a very great sense of community in, in some places. They've got the, the B-17 that's hanging from the ceiling. Oh, that's that very cool, metal isn't works, it? piece of art. Amazing. They have others that are coming. That's all I'll say. But they have others that are coming. And and it's just a cool place to go. It's called Bravery Brewing. It's on 8th Street West in Lancaster. You can check them out. Check out their stuff on on the website. Great beer. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, yeah, and the beer was really good, too. Uh, And I had to grab a couple of six-packs and and bring them home so that I could have them because I had to drive home. So I I think I had one and a half beers while I was there and uh, sat and talked. But it was great. It was great to see... Um, the outpouring of support for for that guy, you know, and for what he meant to a lot of people. And hearing stories, that was the other thing. There were people telling stories about they had never met Arlie Ermey. They had never met him. But their mo- his movies, and specifically Full Metal Jacket, became such part of their vernacular, yeah. whether it was when they were in the service or, you know, just in their normal everyday life. That those comments, that that first opening scene and all of that time as Sergeant Hartman was just incredible. Um, and the excellence that the Marine Corps demands. Yeah. You know, it's you you always equate him with the Marines. Anyway, good times. Hey. So thanks, Bart. Bart was the yeah, one who Bart invited us out, out there. And Bart Sandra, and Sandra, thank you so much. And, uh, and There's Danny. Brian is the, is the brewmaster out there. We got a tour of the little facility. And was, oh, yeah. That, that's real deal back there. Yeah. I think my husband tried to steal a keg. What? No. 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 They have or, or they yes. have their kegs at uh, Bevmo, though. Yep. They're in a bunch of places. All right. Coming up next, everything everyone is talking about everywhere. It's what we do right here on Gary and Shannon. Because we're going to be legends. Good old Stormy Daniels up on the big screen over there, now suing the president for defamation. She filed a complaint in federal court today in New York. What did he Uh, say to defame her? Well, it was a tweet. A tweet is what this case is based on. Uh, Trump's tweet said, a sketch years later about a non-existent man, a total con job, playing the fake news media for fools, but they know it. The court filing says the tweet was false and defamatory. Good Lord. Huh. Right off into the sunset. How's she doing? How's uh, how's her dance tour doing? I don't know. I don't uh, know. How's that. her movie doing? She's uh, she's back in the movie biz. Would you call it the movie biz? Yeah, sure. Around here I would, just to be safe. Hey. You never know who's in the business. What else is going on? 
Time for What's Happening. I don't know who's listening. Good point. Um, Iran is in the news today. Not too long ago, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu held a news conference, which turned out to be a giant PowerPoint presentation explaining how Iran has been lying to everyone about its uh, nuclear ambitions. Netanyahu calling it new evidence that Iran maintained a secret and comprehensive plan to build nuclear weapons but lied repeatedly about it. Uh, I'm sure everyone's going to have their opportunities to go through and look at the information that he gave, but this was not just, like, the bad PowerPoint presentation with a bunch of text. He had pictures. He had pictures, and he's pointing to buildings in Iran that he says house all of the secret documents that Iran says that they either got rid of or program stuff that they're not supposed to have at all. Photo courtesy of clip art. Right. (laughs) Generic Iranian building. This is all about that May 12th deadline. The president wants to pull out of the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. And one of uh, the president's arguments against the deal has been that uh, when when the deal's over, expires in 10 years, Iran can start building nuclear weapons. Well, it says in the deal explicitly that there is a permanent ban on Iran building nuclear weapons. This is this is Netanyahu saying, listen, this is not a country that plays by the rules anyway. A deal with them is not really a deal. Clearly, this was a message intended for President Trump. Um, the, the information he knew, uh, Netanyahu knew that Trump would be watching this. But I think more importantly, it's for countries like France and Germany who want to keep the deal in place. Netanyahu and Trump did this in, in cohort. And, you know, they, yes, they, 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 they knew know, this yeah. was happening. They did it together in, in one way. Yeah. So anyway, we'll follow that because the president, he did make a comment in the Rose Garden today. I think it was the president of Nigeria at a Rose Garden news conference. But when we get more information, when we get our own uh, intelligence agencies to look at the information as well, it could be uh, it could be eye opening. South Korea's president said today that uh, President Trump should win the Nobel Peace Prize for his work to get North and South Korea together at the table. Could you imagine that? That probably will never happen. No, no, but I mean... Even though if this was a Democratic president, the case would have been made already. Well, Barack Obama got the Nobel Peace Prize for having gas. He did nothing. Even, he did even nothing when, when he was nominated for I the Nobel Peace Prize. If I remember correctly, even, when he, even he said that. Yeah. <laughs> he should have been embarrassed by it. He said something to the effect of, uh, I don't deserve this. Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, who at times has been incredibly critical of President Trump, said liberals would kill themselves if Mr. Trump won a Nobel Prize for his work in ending the hostilities in the Korean Peninsula. Well, if you see weed killer uh, together with food today, you'll know why. An internal email reveals a cancer-causing weed killer has been found in many popular foods, crackers, granola, cereal. This was fruits of a freedom of information request from The Guardian. Glyphosate. Glyphosate is the residue that they've been finding on these food products. And it's glyphosate is not just in Roundup. It's in... A hundred other herbicides like it, but it's used in food production around the country. More than 200 million pounds of the weed killer are used every year. So the idea that that's a surprise, I don't think so. It's just that when you see the headlines and you're reminded about how the sausage is made, 
that's when you start tossing out your wheat thins or whatever crackers happen to have life on them. Chemist by the name of Richard Thompson said, I have bought wheat crackers, granola cereal, and cornmeal from home, and there's a fair amount of this in all of them. He says that broccoli yielded the only negative result. Broccoli. Do you think that was just broccoli being broccoli? I think it's big broccoli trying to force the broccoli onto everybody. Well, it's also National Adopt-A-Shelter Pet Day. What are you waiting for? I Blake, know. It's time. It's time for you to get that shelter turtle. No, no, no. Blake needs to move out of his I have parents' house. Non-shelter turtles. Blake needs to get his own place before he starts bringing in new people. Yeah, and Blake, wait a minute. Non-shelter turtle. You're buying purebred turtles? No, we just they birth themselves in our backyard. From a turtle mill. An incidental one, I suppose. Yes. It's not a goal of ours. So but you're a turtle. Fertility hoarder? does seem to occur in our backyard. Fertility. <laughs> Um, okay, I think you're the only one here who doesn't have a pet. And the only one who weekly asks well, us to get a pet. here's right. my struggle. I travel a lot. Right. And that's... Well, stop traveling. My dad keeps telling me, he goes, Shannon said she wants this. We can give her a turtle. And I said, Dad, she doesn't want a turtle. I would love a turtle. Office. Office. He goes, she, do- she seemed like it. And I was like, yeah, but she doesn't, and she's not home enough. How much care do the turtles need? <laughs> um, they seem pretty, uh... They seem pretty But you self- can't leave for like a couple weeks. Like you'd have to find yeah. someone to. Well, you would take care no, of my turtle. See, I don't like that idea. I do. I don't take care of the ones in my own house. <laughs> I want to see you fight me. I'll take care of your turtle. Yeah, Thank you. See, no, Michelle's your dogs will eat my turtle. <laughs> no. Princess will make dinner out of my turtle. Princess would ride the turtle. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> All right, in sync. Go. Saw that in the commercial. Insane, getting a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame today. There are people out there who uh, keep body parts of these guys in their freezers. Um, no, 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 that's not how it went. The girl, it is. It's exactly how it went. No, no, the girl said that she got an InSync birthday cake from the Dairy Queen, took Justin's head off of it, and kept it in the freezer for two decades. When I was like eight years old, ah. I got InSync on my birthday cake from Dairy Queen. And ever since then, I've saved Justin's head in my freezer. And I won't take it out because I like, I love him. Blake, you should see if she's single. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say she is. I'm just going out on a limb there. What's your favorite in sync song? I want you to go first. Let's do a my, quick uh, gas go you around. You guys here. are, uh, yeah. Start the music, but then pull it down because I got some. I All think. Right. Uh, start with Blake. What's your favorite in sync song? I'd Again, in sync was this group I'd that probably. Yeah, I know who they are. Um, I'd probably have to go with Bye 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 because it's right. the only one I can like sing along with. Everybody loves a revenge breakup song. Yeah. Especially, well, this was, no, this was not the Britney one. No, he did that, that was solo. Cry Me a River. Right, he did that solo. Nice moves, Hoffman. Good isolations you've got there. Now, is it true? I'm not sure if this is true. One of the members of NSYNC, would you say, what was the other, what was the one you made the joke about? Joey? No. Lance? Lance. That he did not get uh, cast in the Backstreet Boys and went back to Lou Pearlman and said, I want to start another band. I don't know if that's true of her apocryphal I, or listen, what. Listen, but... I have not uh, done a deep dive into NSYNC history. Michelle? I really hate to admit this. 
Just do it. Tearing up my heart. Oh, I don't even have man. that one. I thought I, I knew that you. One. I, I, I don't gonna... know why. I really don't because oh. I hate everything else. Yeah. But I don't know why that one speaks to me. <laughs> I don't know why. To you. There it is. This would be my last choice for you. Ugh. All right, you? What, your... I, I think I got to go with it's going to be May. Uh, God. <laughs> Which is funny because today is it's going to be May. Today. Right. I know. I think that that was not a coincidence. I think they planned on this day. No. Patchy, man. Best end song. This is like 2001 or something. Not one of their most popular. It was pop. Oh man. This is a terrible song. Come on! Julie. Yes. I know your ears are bleeding right now because I mean, you enjoy real rock, good music. Rock chick, yeah. <laughs> So this is all very Is it like terrible. sacrilegious to ask you what your favorite NSYNC song is? I only I go with Blake that I'm the I only know the one song. Okay. The bye bye bye. Uh, yeah. I'm more I would go more with Britney, I think. Yeah. Safe way to put it though. <laughs> yeah, I have to play some Black Sabbath or something. Just to cleanse our souls. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll come back. This is terrible, Hoffman. We'll come back. Uh, Whole Foods is full of racists. We'll talk about that. And also, your chance to win $1,000 coming up in just a couple minutes. Turn it off. This is one of the rare songs where everyone got a chance at the microphone. Absolutely terrible. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. Monday, April 30th, and it is about that time where we give away $1,000. Your shot at $1,000 now. Text the keyword BILLS to 200-200. You'll get a text confirming entry plus iHeartRadio info. Standard data and messaging rates apply. That's BILLS to 200-200. Got to answer that phone. If they call you might be from a number that you don't recognize, and if you don't answer, they'll give $1,000 to somebody else. Your next chance to win is an hour from now. Go, your turn. Is it racist <laughs> for us to open up a place called yes. Cracker-ass Crackers or something? Or Cracker Barrel, perhaps? Well, Cracker Barrel on its face isn't really racist. Well, like let's... Whitey McWhiterson's white food. Yes, let's serve stuff like Wonder Bread yes. and mayonnaise. <laughs> That's it. And that is all. Um, glass of milk to Boxed wash it wine. down. Boxed white wine, stuff like that, and call it Cracker Crackerville or something Or White like that. Trash Express or something. There is a, uh, there's a store that, or a, a small restaurant, if you want to call it that, that has opened up in a couple of different Whole Foods markets around the country. I think there's three of them now. And they're called, well, let me tell you what they serve first. 
There's one in Long Beach at a Whole, a Whole Foods 365, third location. They serve Asian bowl-style foods, right? The noodles, the, the meats, the veggies, that sort of thing. Rice, noodles, salad, various toppings and sauces. Much like what Shannon's eating right now. And they call themselves Yellow Fever. <gasps> now, Kelly Kim and her husband, Michael... Before they opened their first location five years ago, they're the ones who came up with the name. It's a, this is just a, there's a ridiculous outcry on social media. How dare you? Yellow fever, that's racist. Well, the yellow fever, some people are afraid that the yellow fever is racist because it makes fun of the infection that kills thousands of people every year, most of them in Africa. That's not what they're going for. No, yellow fever is also the term given to uh, white men and their fascinations with Asian women, like okay. Rich Murata. Okay, yellow fever. Now, Kelly says that before this week, when they opened that third location at the Whole Foods in Long Beach, this wasn't an issue. They did not take the term to have any sort of overtly sexual or negative meaning, adding that it's a whole lot more nuanced than what a lot of Pearl clutchers are thinking. She says that the term yellow fever implies with an attraction or affinity of Asian people or Asian things like K-pop or karaoke. And she says, I never took it to have a deeper meaning. It's a little tongue in cheek, but I never saw it as offensive or racist or anti-feminist. She has to explain this. It, well, I know, but. Well, this is where we're at. But is it like to get the joke? She does at least acknowledge there is a joke that's embedded in there. They're just, they don't want to put a negative connotation to it. Tongue in cheek. Absolutely. Okay. So do you remember the whole argument over the slants? No. The, there was a band out of Portland. They were like North America's first synth pop Asian band or something like that. And they wanted to trademark the name of their band, The Slants. And there was a huge fight to the point that it went to the Supreme Court about whether or not they could trademark that name and the government could prevent them from doing so. And they finally decided, listen, we may not like it. Uh, whatever our personal feelings about the mark at issue here or other disparaging marks, the First Amendment forbids government regulators to deny registration because they find speech likely to offend others. Keep your name, trademark it, whatever you want. Now, the... The issue of whether or not they should keep this name at their restaurant, of course they should. Yeah, that's if we're if we're if we've gone that far, then um, that's just ridiculous. Yellow fever. That, that that it's now racist, and that you have to worry. You have to. St I don't know. I don't even know where. If if Kelly Kim is Asian. If Kelly and her husband Michael are Asian, do they get a free pass? Even for if it, yes, okay. and even if they're not Asian, I don't think that that's a offensive thing. I mean, it really does go to the affinity with things Asian when you think of yellow fever. I never think of like the rich Marathas of the world when I hear yellow fever. I think of like people that are into eating Asian food. Okay, but the you know the yellow part of it is what's getting yeah, people I know. upset. Yeah. It's yeah okay. Not the, but not when, the fever part. But, but does gets... the Kim family get to be held up as racists when they are Asian themselves? No. No. 
I feel bad for that. That's what, the only that reason that this is getting that much press is because Whole Foods is attached to it. And whenever right. anyone thinks Whole Foods, you think of uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and her Goop friends. Yes. So you wouldn't want them to start an, uh, a restaurant called Yellow Fever. You think uh, entirely inclusive kombucha when you think of Whole Foods. Moist, pulpy, mother that. fungus. Swamp Watch. Yes, I can't wait. How perfect. Gary and Shannon will continue just a moment. Drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together. Swamp Watch. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM640. Well, if you didn't uh, stay up to watch C-SPAN and the White House Correspondents' Dinner, you're going to have to find that fare elsewhere. We're not serving it up today. It's funny that I think about, I mean, how many times, I, I want to say I was aware of the White House Correspondents' Dinner, maybe like 1999, 2000, was probably the first time I was really aware that something like that even went on. And I always thought, man... What a great time that would be on a Saturday night to watch C-SPAN. Well, it's kind of like a nerd's comedy hour type thing. Like, usually it's really smart humor. You've got to be in tune politically, know what's going on to get the jokes. And it's kind of fun to check it out. Well, that wasn't what happened over the weekend. And in fact, it, it went so awry that the White House Correspondents Association had to put out a statement that Michelle Wolf's routine is not in the spirit of our mission. I love that they that they actually came out and put out a statement that said, oops, yeah, we screwed up. Um, Michelle Wolf, stand-up comedian, she's on the Today Show, a correspondent. She's done an HBO special. She's had some, she's had some success as a stand-up comedian. Um, and I, I will say this, from what I saw, the vast majority of her um, of her portion of the program on Friday, I did find humor in it. I just didn't like the way she delivered it. Like I said earlier, I think if some of her jokes were written down, they would have come across better. But because she was the mouthpiece and her tone and her lack of sobriety, I think it appeared, uh, just it was not good. <laughs> Listen to you, Pot. Um, the, the, the thing I, um, I, I wanted to see her not do was fall into a stand-up routine. And as weird as that sounds... She has the opportunity to perform a roast, not just of a, a, a guest of honor, which for the most part, a lot of times, is the is the sitting president. Hasn't been for the last couple of years, but I felt like there she dev, she devolved into her stand up act, where a lot of the stuff became about her, and that's not why we're there. We're not, I didn't we're not spend, there to talk about Michelle Wolf. I didn't spend more than uh, forty five seconds listening to her yeah but you know why I mean there was that was the other part of it is because she had a really hard voice to listen to uh, let me play it because I'm going to turn that up and play it. sorry it's playing in sync too loud I had to turn it down I actually really like Sarah I think she's very resourceful. I, I can't do it. you know what's funny I, is I honestly cannot did, listen to that again in the 10 o'clock hour I did that and you recoiled then also I can't listen to that voice I just I won't do it uh, she did go after everybody. I mean, it's not to say that she just went after Republicans or just after um, members of the Trump administration, specifically Sarah Sanders. But she also went after Rachel Maddow. She went after um, Jim Acosta. She went after a lot of people. So it wasn't it wasn't just that she went after Republicans. It was just that I didn't think she was all that funny. 
Well, it just did not fit. There. We saw this coming. Uh, White House physician Ronnie Jackson, whose name fell out of contention to lead the VA, will not return to his role as the president's personal physician. This is according to two senior administration officials who spoke to CNN. Of course, uh, Ronnie Jackson, Navy Rear Admiral, he uh, was pretty entertaining when we first saw him in this administration uh, talking about the president's health and how how healthy the president is. And he clearly was uh, had a good relationship with the president. And so he his name floated to the top for secretary of veterans affairs. Well, then came all these allegations that he would loosely hand out prescription pain meds, that he uh, drank too much during an overseas trip, uh, maybe knocked on a female colleague's door in the middle of the night, all of these these things. So he said, you know what, I'm out. The White House official told CNN last week that Ronnie Jackson had returned to the White House medical unit, but not as the president's physician. I wonder if uh, I wonder why that would be. Because, because Ronnie Jackson can't. has gone through background check. He's gone through, I think it's four background yeah, checks. Yeah, but when stories come out like you're the president's physician, they try to wake you up on a trip overseas and you are non-responsive, that's a problem. That's a liability problem moving forward. True. Um, the president also was upset. The The main criticisms that we heard, the allegations that we heard against Dr. Jackson came from John Tester. Uh, in that he was the one who voiced them. He said that people had come to him. John Tester is a senator from Montana, Democratic senator from Montana. And the president went after John Tester at that um, the rally that he held on Saturday night instead of going to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Well, I know things about Tester that I could say, too. Yeah. And if I said him, he'd never be elected again. Now... What I heard, I heard that whole thing. What, what I heard when he said that was, I can make up stuff, too, because he's been saying that these allegations against Dr. Jackson were not true, that he's an impeccable man. I think he even made a reference to the Secret Service uh, having told him that those stories are not true. The Secret Service told me just coming in, sir, we checked out all of those things. Sir, they're not true. They're not true. I don't know. I don't know if the Secret Service does that. I'm not sure that they would uh, say something like that to the president about a situation like this. Um, but anyway, I, that's that's too bad because, again, the possibility that these stories are not true, that they're just people vindictive and out to get him, that's kind of sucks. Uh, but it's again, it's a possibility. I don't know. You don't know. We don't know. Well, good swampy story to come back to. The director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has asked that his salary be reduced. What? You're saying? Who would do that? Who would do that? Well, probably someone who was making a lot more than he should be. Someone who was making almost twice what his predecessor earned. And he wanted to keep his job? I'll tell you about it. Oh, and did you see what happened to that tree? The French president came and brought a tree. The missing tree. They pl- made a big ceremony with the golden shovels and everything about planting a tree on the White House grounds. Mm-hmm. And then in the dark of night, the tree thieves came and took it away. We'll talk about what happened to that tree. Did you see the first lady of France's high heels, by the way, at that planting ceremony? Well, they need to aerate the soil. That's clearly what's what you would use those Melania's for. Melania's wearing them, too. She's got heels on. Who's, who's do you think look better? Really? I th- come on, that's a ding dong right there. <laughs> Carol-
Terry and Shannon, KFI AM 640. That is a ding dong. <laughs> What has happened to the album? So, uh, Senator Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, of course, shined a light on the salary of the director of the Centers for Disease Control. Now, why is this guy making $375,000 a year, twice as much as his predecessors? What's going on here? He And she says, it looks like, as she dug into it, now, he was hired under a special salary program. A Title 42, as it's known, was established by Congress to line its friends' pockets. No, I'm sorry. That's not what it says in the Washington Post. <laughs> Title 42, as it's known, was established by Congress to attract health scientists with rare and critical skills to government work. It grants federal agencies authority to offer salary and benefit packages that are competitive with those offered in the private sec- uh, sector. It's just that he has very limited public health experience, uh, very limited leadership role experience. He's really not at this top tier of science level that this program was established to to cater to. Wait, so was it designed to pull people from the, from the private yeah, sector? Yeah, but not... The likes of him. He's Uh, not like that guy. He just benefited from somebody else's Right. (laughs) So he asked that his salary be reduced after Patty Murray brought this up. Before it could be, before it could gain any momentum in the public eye. He's like, yeah, let's just go ahead and quietly lower my salary before people find out that I'm here and I'm not (laughs) supposed to be here. Yeah, like that's not going to make headlines. The guy asking for his own salary. Exactly. Uh, Well, the president, French President uh, Emmanuel Macron, came to the White House last week. And we talked all about the official visit and the state visit and the friendship and the awkwardly long physical contact that the two of them had together. One of the things that the two presidents did was planted a tree. This is like an historic tree because the, um, the president of France brought a sapling. It was a gift. And I, it was some history to it, like World War II history. It was born out of an acorn or I don't know. It was something, something like that. And they make a big deal out of uh, standing down on the White House lawn mm. while this music was playing in the background. A couple of uh, golden shovels. And Emmanuel says, Oh, this abrin is for you. Parvue. However they say it in French. You know, so they, um, not all French people uh, speak in the uh, that that accent, the Pepe uh, Le Pew accent. Uh, trust me, I know like seven French people, mm-hmm. and they all speak like that. Interesting. All right. So uh, they take the shovels with their wives that are right nearby, and they put the dirt on the base of the arbre, and then the tree disappeared, and nobody knew where the hell it went. Well, so, so the media flocks to the South Lawn to take pictures today of the yellow spot where the tree used to be. Yeah, there is. Well, it's a quarantine issue. It's like when you come back to the country and they say, do you have any fruits or vegetables or plants with you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've got to uh, quarantine that tree, do things by the book. Yeah, to, to try to prevent the spread of parasites. They said that it will go back in the near future to make sure once they know for sure that it is, in fact, parasite 
free, uh, which I don't know how you say that in the France. Doesn't that defeat, defeat the purpose yes. of planting it it's in the a, first place? You are exactly correct. Our our arborist uh, in residence, Michelle, how by is putting that? it in the soil in the first place, you've transferred any parasites mm-hmm. that you had. Unless uh, now I don't I didn't see the beginning of it. They can put that little tree condom on it uh, around the root ball, yeah. and then put it in and take it out and put it they in may and have take it that. out. They and might put have. it in and take it out. They may. What are you doing over there? What? With your hand motions. I was, I was just... you put it in and take it out. I was planting the tree. <laughs> I tried to learn French. Yes, and? Uh, you know, Rosetta Stone. Yes. The only thing I took away was green bicycle. Un, oh. Un vélo vert. Wow. It's and green. you nail that accent, too, man. You're damn right I do. <laughs> That's it. That's all I got. You would be our hostess at the Whitey McWhite White restaurant. Uh, oh, you're gonna oh. have to park your velo vert somewhere else. <laughs> oh. You cheese monkey! What would your role be, Mister International? Uh, Fancy pants. Uh, a French president's uh, what is this uh, office music? official. This is nice. It is a French music. What you might hear on the Champs Elysees. <laughs> uh, this tree was imported from the Below Wood Forest. If Gary was a Disney animal, what would he be? <laughs> frog. Like, a, like a, like a, you know, a lovable animal that has a personality. A frog. And a voice. A frog, huh? I think he would be more of like a, a, a rodent, like a ferret or something. Can I go a little bit bigger than a ferret, please? Okay. Can I at least be something like a like capybara? A no, I could still be a rodent. I don't mind being the rodent, but I want something with a little bit of... Like a nutria or something a like nutria. that? Nutria. How do you spell that? N-U-T-R-I-A. Uh-huh. Do you know what the French word for nutria is? Ville verte. Oh, nutria. Yes. Like a giant rat. You yeah. may be a nutria. That'd be fine. I'm a California native, and nutrias are sort of an a invasive copi- species. Uh, Koipu? Koipu is also another one, yeah. Koipu. Similar. Uh... I believe that you're a koipu. Are those his teeth? Look at those teeth. I know. They look like apple slices. They look like cunning dental got to me. Uh, One of the other stories about uh, what's going on in Washington, D.C., the president on Saturday night at that big, um, uh, the big rally in Michigan. Oh, can I say one thing? Can I say one thing about what was funny at the Washington Correspondents' Dinner? Okay. Um, She was making a reference to uh, the president and the allegations that the campaign was working with Russia, mm-hmm. and she made a comment that why would the why would the Trump campaign want to work with Russia if I'm screwing up the joke if the Clinton campaign couldn't even work with the state of Michigan? It's mm. funnier when she said it. I'm sorry, I, I I'm in the odd place of being the only person in America yeah, no, today okay. who has it's to just, apologize it, you know, to Michelle it's, Wolf. No, it's just I I just don't find men funny. <laughs> It's not you. <laughs> I get it. I get it. You've been texting my wife, haven't you? Uh-huh. So the president did tell supporters <laughs> at a speech in Michigan on Saturday that if Congress did not meet his funding demands for border security, he may be looking at allowing, because he can't really start it, but allowing a government shutdown this fall. Uh, He says, we have to have borders, we have to have them fast, and we need security, we need the wall, we're going to have it all. 
And again, that wall was started. We got $1.6 billion. We come up again on September 28th. And if we don't get border security, we'll have no choice. We'll close down the country because we need border security. All right. Uh, more importantly, perhaps in border security, Amazon Prime is raising its prices. What? One of the things we'll dive into when we come back, we've got Rebecca Jarvis with us for Market Mondays. She likes a French music. Don't do that when she's on the phone. I don't want her to, I don't want you to embarrass her. I want you to speak in French when she's on the phone. How's that? You want me to work in green bicycles? Yes. All yes. right. I'll see you in a Oh, the Ville Verde. It's Market Monday on Gary and Shannon. Because everyone loves money. And alliteration sounds great on the radio. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. Hey, did you see that uh, eye cut? It's being called the worst eye cut in MMA history. Guy uh, Jack Mason got this cut to his eye Friday night. Yeah, they say, uh, you know, the window to the soul is the eyeball. I think the window to the soul is the cut above this guy's eye. Yes. You, you see brainstem. It's, it's, you got to get in there. We've got it on our website. Do not, if you're squeamish, that is not something for you to check out. Yeah, but you can't not I know. check it out, I know. even <laughs> if you are squeamish. Uh, I was squeamish when Blake showed me his uh, scars today. I know. He's me put together too. with like tape and glue. Staples for sure. We've got a picture of Blake's injuries. Um, from surgery. How you feel, Blake? Are you doing okay? Are you like you need some time or on Instagram? No, no. Is your belly? Is your tum tum still warm? It's getting warmer with this chicken I'm eating. Oh, Let's I didn't know they allowed here. you to eat food. I thought you, I thought you could just have all the ice cream you wanted. Now the nurse actually was really nervous the next morning because I was eating like eggs and toast and everything. Ooh, and she was like, ah, uh, and I was like, dude, I'm hungry. Get on board or get out. People on yeah, people on sure Instagram think we did that to Blake. No, no, those are not stab wounds no, or puncture wounds. That's from a they doc- are puncture wounds. Well, I know they are, but it's, it's not like we, not like we did them. Guys, you were, just no. to be clear, you were nowhere near us when those the injuries happened. No, I was nowhere. Actually, I was relatively near Shannon. Actually, Johnny said, "Really, you had to post the pics?" <laughs> yeah. If when a, if a member of the team is going to go in for surgery, we're going to post pics of whatever we can do. I did show uh, Shannon what an inflamed appendix looks like. It looked like the ba- bag of bacon that she ate earlier. It does. It does look like the bacon. So we'll see if she goes. She continues. Uh, what are we doing? Rebecca Jarvis has been oh, sitting sorry. there forever. <laughs> Rebecca, sorry about that. We had to get some. We had to get some uh, office work out of the way. <laughs> I just, the idea of the inflamed appendix as a mm. bag of bacon. Don't Google it. That didn't go well. No. Yeah. No, that's not good. Uh, we get to talk to Rebecca about money and business stuff every Monday. And um, let's start with how things went uh, on Wall Street today with the Dow down 148, 150 points. Yeah, near the lows of the session is where things closed. At one point, the Dow was actually up almost 200 points. Um, but today, I think there's some uncertainty in the market today. There's uncertainty around what happens with the Iran deal. There's uncertainty with what happens around tariffs. And you have, in terms of the Dow itself, two major stock stories, one in Verizon, which was the biggest decliner, and McDonald's, which was the biggest gainer. McDonald's gained on a much better-than-expected earnings report, and Verizon lost on this news of the potential T-Mobile Sprint $26 billion deal, which 
four years in the making, they finally got to the point where they could announce it. Now the question is, will regulators go for it? Yeah, and it uh, puts us, uh, I guess, ahead of, John, uh, ahead of China when it comes to next generation mo- mobile network. Well, that's the argument that T-Mobile and Sprint are making. They are saying that together, that the two companies moving forward together are stronger than the two companies individually when it comes to building out the U.S.'s 5G. At this point, when you look at, um, you know, they've done independent research that looks at who's the farthest ahead when it comes to 5G, and Korea and China are way out front of the U.S., so they're making this argument that together, Uh, T-Mobile and Sprint together will build out 5G. That will create thousands of jobs. I spoke with both the CEOs last night um, shortly after this news was introduced, and they are saying at this point, they're promising that the deal is going to lower costs create broader uh, opportunities for customers, that they're going to do this 5G build-out, which will mean jobs. And then also they're talking about bringing more service to uh, rural communities, where in many rural communities you've got one broadband option, and they say we're going to be the competitor in those places, and that will ultimately lower prices there as well. That is their argument. Now, regulators are going to say, okay, well, you've got a field of four players, Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, and T-Mobile. And if Sprint and T-Mobile, which are way smaller in size than Verizon and AT&T, but historically speaking, regulators are usually not in favor of deals that consolidate what you would call a horizontal merger that consolidate um, two companies because that cuts some of the competition out. But what could be interesting here is that both T-Mobile and Sprint have been known um, to be the players that have pushed the rest of the industry on pricing that Sprint and T-Mobile have been the most competitive on pricing. T-Mobile's unlimited plans um, have pushed the rest of the industry to go more in that direction. So they'll make this argument. You can watch Rebecca Jarvis answer this next question on Facebook Live. Uh, I want to know, in your opinion, is it better to have 10 smaller companies that can be flexible, that can be resourceful, that can be regional, or two giant companies that can lower the cost because of simply the power of their networks and the, you know, the, the price point through volume? That is a really difficult question. One thing I will say is two companies, a duopoly, not necessarily what I would go for. However, the 10 companies, there's probably going to be consolidation there anyway. And if you, if that consolidates to a handful of companies that can deliver really strong service, one of the, one of the biggest questions is when it comes to these mergers, can these companies, when, when you've got AT&T and Verizon, which control about 70% of the market, how much longer can T-Mobile and Sprint independently continue to deliver the service that they currently do to customers? That's one of the arguments that they're going to make, that ultimately, and, and what you've really seen over the last couple of years is T-Mobile, their CEO, John Legere, has gone very hard at getting new customers. Sprint has lost a lot of customers in the last couple of years to T-Mobile. And so the question is, how much longer will Sprint hang on as its own company before it gets swallowed up or goes some other direction? Um, and, and so I think back to your question, I know, I'm sorry, I'm not answering it outright because it's a, it's kind of a pie-in-the-sky hard question to answer. I would choose the 10 companies, but I would assume that in the 10 companies scenario that there's going to be consolidation there anyway.
Rebecca, Jeff Bezos famously said there are two kinds of retailers. There are the folks who work to try to figure out how to charge more and companies that work to figure out how to charge less. And we are going to be the second. Well, now, uh, fast forward 17 17 years, and uh, they are raising the cost of Amazon Prime. We've also got some, some price hikes going up in the world of Coke and Hershey's. Can you hang on and talk about that when we come back? I can't wait. Awesome. Rebecca Jarvis. Again, you can follow her, watch her on Facebook Live right now. Search for Rebecca Jarvis and you'll see her uh, video there. And she's sitting in her office there in New York talking to us, thankfully. Uh, When we come back, we're also going to give you a chance to win $1,000. We'll tell you how to do that right after this. Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. You look kind of creepy watching Rebecca in the break. Because <laughs> you're not. I'm not the only one. <laughs> just to be clear, uh, Rebecca Jarvis joins us in just a second. We'll get back to Rebecca, but you can watch her on Facebook Live from her office there in New York. Just go to Facebook, search for Rebecca Jarvis, and you'll see the video live. But first, your chance to win $1,000. Your shot at $1,000 now. Text the keyword cash to 200-200. You'll get a text confirming entry plus iHeartRadio info. Standard data and messaging rates apply. That's cash to 200-200. Got to pick up that phone when they call you because if you don't, they'll give $1,000 to somebody who will answer the phone. Uh, but your chance to win uh, is coming up. The next chance is one hour from now during the John and Ken Show. G- Bill Cosby's jury is talking to reporters. We'll have all the very latest about their thoughts coming up next. But, yeah, we are talking to Rebecca Jarvis, and it looks like Amazon Prime going to raise that price from $99 a year. That's right, guys, $119 a year. Um, they They announced this, and I was thinking when Amazon made the announcement, oh, so that's why Alexa was laughing. Oh, boy. Do you guys remember that? No. Yes. The creepy there laugh. The thing. There was this creepy laugh. I watched some of the videos. <laughs> I didn't. Ha- I don't have an Alexa at home, but I was watching the videos, and I, I thought it was kind of funny. But, yeah, <laughs> now Amazon is raising prices. Amazon also happens to be making boatloads of money. And, Shannon, as you mentioned before the break, this is, uh, this is kind of interesting and maybe counterintuitive to Jeff Bezos because he, back in the day, Um, said there were two kinds of retailers. There were those folks who worked to figure out how to charge more and companies that worked to figure out how to charge less, and we are going to be the second. So Amazon, for all of this time, has dubbed itself as the low-priced retailer. Um, But I, I think they're doing this for a couple of reasons at this point. One, because that $20 increase, while $20 is $20. There's a lot of Amazon customers who will just live with it because that's, you know, they've come to use Amazon and they'll live with the product that they've come to use. And two, the kind of ambitions that Jeff Bezos has to expand, they cost money. And that incremental increase in the price of the Prime membership my belief is that that money will be used by Jeff Bezos and Amazon to continue expanding in ways that you might not even imagine today. Uh, the numbers on that, though, that's we're talking two billion dollars that they could make on this. Right, because they have 100 million prime customers at this point and all of those prime accounts. So basically what will happen is um, in May, 
early in May, they're going to start saying new Prime customers pay $119. So if you sign up as a new Prime customer, you'll pay that $119. Then in June, for previous Prime members, if anybody has a pre-existing Prime account, they'll get the option, do you want to continue having a Prime account? And if you do, you will start paying $119. All right. What about uh, Coke and Hershey? Uh, their costs are going up. Are we going to be paying more for those products as well? Well, the question is, are they going to pass those costs along to us, or are they going to eat those costs? Um, they, uh, Procter & Gamble, General Mills, they are all flagging higher shipping costs and raw materials prices, and they say that those are squeezing their profit margins. Anybody who drives a car knows that Recently, the cost of gasoline has been going up. We've been in a period for a couple of years now of, you know, rock-bottom prices, uh, relatively speaking, over the last decade in gasoline. And you're seeing those prices go up. And the big question is, do these companies pass those prices along to the customer, or do they try and figure out how to manage through the price increases. What's interesting to me is we talked about McDonald's before the break. Um, Chipotle is another company that's done this. They have figured out a way to pass the prices along to the customer, and the customer continues to come back and consume more. And McDonald's has actually seen its sales boosted by those higher menu prices. So that could be a template that these other companies look to when they're deciding what to do. Uh, you mentioned that McDonald's was one of the reasons why we might have seen a, a positive day, at least early on Wall Street, was because of their higher earnings. Yeah, and their their stock, they were the best performer on the Dow today. Um, the, the weakest performer was Verizon, which we talked a little bit about the, um, the Sprint T-Mobile issue. So Verizon obviously would face new competition if that deal were to go through. And you can imagine that's why people on Wall Street were uh, – we're selling a little bit today. I just had this conversation with some friends uh, and my wife. There are a couple stores in the shopping center that's near us where that we've lost. We've lost a giant grocery store in Albertsons. We've lost a sports chalet. We've lost or losing Toys R Us. We have some big retail spaces that we're losing, and we're asking, you know, what's going to go in there? And I, I've yeah. never heard of this company before, but a company out of London called Appear Here. What do they do? So this is fascinating to me because I've been noticing the amount of open retail spaces. They're all over New York as well. There's so much vacancy at the street level. And you have to ask yourself, how long do these companies that own the buildings, how long are they really willing to let that space be vacant without making any money on it. Well, this new company appear here that you mentioned, they're based out of London. They've now come to New York and they work on short-term leases. So they are doing, they're the ones who are overseeing the pop-up shops that exist. And what I think is interesting is the model, no one else is describing it as this, or at least I haven't seen it described like this, but it reminds me a little bit of the Airbnb model where it's like, oh, well, we have a space. It's available. Um, here are the terms for that space, and it's available to you as a short-term lease. The difference here is that it's companies that might use these short-term leases to sell their products in the store space or just to have a, a connection with the customer at the ground level that are purchasing these short-term leases from the company appear here. And there's some pretty major companies that have been using the pop-up shops, Spotify, Netflix, Supreme, um, Kanye West, according to this article, has used them. But the other, the other um, component to this is that 
big retailers like a company like Topshop or brands that are looking for exposure in a niche setting in a place that they may not be currently known are using this as an opportunity. And I, I think it's quite smart, actually. I mean, I think I think with I looked at the appear here story and thought, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> pop up shops just seem to be the natural next big thing. Um, well, yeah. You know, it, it's like. It's like the way that, uh, that that millennials, you know, find new restaurants and all of that. It's, it's almost like pop-up restaurants, and why wouldn't this be the, the natural progression of things? Absolutely, and from the business standpoint, you're talking about a lower risk. You're, you're, you get, it's an opportunity to, for example, scope out a neighborhood. If you think a neighborhood would make a lot of sense for your business, you think it would help your business, well, you use one of these opportunities with a short-term lease, and you go in, and obviously, like the economics play, a role here. If the short-term lease is insanely expensive and you have to pay through the nose to get short-term exposure, it might not make sense. But if you can get in and experiment a little bit, I think from a small business owner standpoint, wow, what a great thing. Because up until now, in order to have a location, um, you know, you had to commit to such a long period of time. And when you're a small business, it's hard to know a, is this the right community for me to sell my goods in? And B, how long am I going to be able to sustain at this level? And the one thing that Appear Here is talking about now is getting into actual shopping malls and looking at the shopping mall. They're coming to California, by the way. They also have Love their it. eyes set on the U.S. malls. Uh, let's, um, in the vast milliseconds of free time that you have, uh, <laughs> you put together the No Limits podcast as well. What's coming up this week? We have Britt Morin. Anybody out there who's familiar with Britt & Co. will know her. She is a woman who got her first job at Apple on Craigslist and has a fascinating story about how she built this company as somebody who was really interested early on in the Internet and figured out how to build an entire brand around DIY, uh, figuring, like, you know, decorating and figuring out recipes, and she's got this great story, and so I hope people will listen in. And I mentioned this in the break, you guys. We do um, this RJ Answer segment where people can call in with their career questions. So that's a bonus segment that we've got. So if you have career questions, definitely want to check that out too. Excellent. We'll make sure that we throw a link up so people can find the No Limits podcast. Rebecca Jarvis, thank you. So good talking to you guys. Have a great week. When you are you too. coming to California? Oh. I need to come to California. I need to come to California, and I need to have a trip where I don't get on an airplane in the morning and get on an airplane at night, because that's too many of my California trips. Yes. We would love to see you. We would love to have you. I want to see you guys. One of these days, like in a decade, we'll get to meet face-to-face. <laughs> and, and you'll be amazed at the people that they put in the picture that you sent look nothing like us. That, yeah. You, anyway. Rebecca Jarvis, <laughs> thank you so much. Bye. Coming right. up next, we've got the Cosby jurors talking about why they had no problems convicting America's dad. Convicting him. To de- he's not going to death. Is no. He? But he's no. going to be in prison no, for a while. He's not going to death. Gary and Shannon will continue just a moment. Set me free. Shannon. Did you read Tom Brokaw's letter? Yes. I actually 
I read it out loud to my wife yesterday. I, I was that, I don't know if moved is the right word, but I definitely read that letter. Did that you do it in your Tom Brokaw voice? <laughs> no. My wife uh, has no patience for that. What? She has no patience <laughs> no. for your voices? Oh, she's so sick and tired of this. I don't think that could possibly be true. Yeah. Are you texting her right now to ask her? No. <laughs> Uh, one of the stories of the very busy week that we had last week was the guilty verdicts against uh, Bill Cosby in the sexual assault trial there in Pennsylvania. We are finally getting some comments from some of the jurors who were involved in that guilty verdict. Mark Remillard is joining us to talk more about this. Uh, Mark, what are some of the things that they're saying about what went on in that jury room? Yeah, so we've heard from uh, at least one juror at this point and a statement from the actual uh, foreman of the jury. But uh, the juror we've heard from so far, his name's Harrison Snyder. He was 22 years old, reportedly the youngest juror on the panel, uh, and so young, that in fact, that he says, you know, I didn't even grow up with Cosby, uh, and, and I really didn't even know much about him or even why he was on trial by the time he was seated. But basically, he says that this came down to Cosby's own words and that the depositions from 2005 and 2006 that were previously sealed, in which Cosby talks about his sexual encounter with Andrea Constand and uh, giving quaaludes to women he wanted to have sex with, that, that he said those were the most important uh, things that they considered in this. And in fact, this jury asked three questions. Uh, one of those questions involved the uh, them reading back all of those deposition statements. And so that was clearly the, the most key part of this for, for this jury. What about his behavior? Uh, did, did they comment about that at all? No, I did not see anything on the comment of his behavior. Uh, there were really only a couple instances that you can think of. Remember that big outburst that he had uh, that everyone was talking about came after the jury was dismissed and after their jury where he cursed at the prosecutor. But during closing, there was that incredible moment where the prosecutor uh, said she thought she saw him laughing, and she came over square face-to-face -face with him, walked right over to him, and essentially uh, scolded him for that and said, this is not funny, uh, what you've done to these women, essentially. And so that was a really key moment and a, and a really powerful moment for the prosecution. Uh, so really, in terms of his behavior, the rest of the time, Cosby was quiet and sat there, and, and, and there you go. So um, nothing, no comments from the jurors yet about Cosby and his behavior yet. This juror, Harrison Snyder, said that he had never heard of the Me Too movement until after the trial. That's right. He said that he looked it up online after he got home, and he says he doesn't watch the news at all, listen to anything, so he says he was just completely unaware of that. Um, and this was something that we know they asked them about during the actual jury selection. They asked them about whether you know whether they were influenced by the Me Too movement. And so this, this juror here, 22 years old, says, I didn't even know what it was. And that kind of fits with a second statement that we got from the foreman in which she said um, – in which she said uh, that, that at no point during their deliberations did they discuss race or did they discuss the Me Too movement. That's funny that you would be able to escape it. Was, would you, yeah, you know, I know, where, right? Where you've been living for the past uh, two years or so. Yeah, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, apparently. Apparently there's a news blackout there. Um, when, I'd like to go there. When, he referred to this, the deposition that was read into the uh, court record and the deposition where, where Cosby himself said – you know, I give them I give her quaaludes. We then have sex. And this was a from a, a, a case way back in 1976 or the the instance from 1976. Um, was that deposition allowed in the first trial? 
Yes, it was. This was, and that's the interesting thing is that you know this is a different jury, so maybe they took different weight to this deposition. But they were both they were the deposition was part of both trials, and and the deposition is really the reason that we have criminal charges ever brought up against Cosby, uh, and they were filed on virtually the last day they could be filed before the statute of limitations expired. Uh, these, as I said, these these uh, depositions were sealed and were only un or were only opened up in 2015 after the Associated Press uh, essentially moved for them to be a public record, and a federal judge agreed. And then what happens next? We mentioned last week you were talking about what happens before he gets into sentencing. Where are we in that process? Well, the judge has ordered, now ordered Cosby, uh, actually filed the official order for him to undergo a sexual violent predator assessment uh, in which he'll be looked at for whether or not he has a propensity to be essentially a predator. Uh, and if this panel that uh, that goes through and assesses this finds that he is, he will be essentially registered with the state police as such for the rest of his life. Um, and from there, the judge will take that assessment uh, and a number of other things, and like I said, including his, uh, his health, his age, into consideration as he decides his sentence. And we're getting our first kind of hint at when the sentencing may be um, as part of that order for Cosby to undergo that assessment at the bottom, the judge wrote that sentencing will be in 75 days, which would be mid-July. Uh, the judge has to actually file that as an order, so that it's not official yet. But uh, that appears to be uh, when the judge is thinking of doing this. And then finally, in that sentencing, we heard from the five women during the trial, uh, the five women that were allowed to testify about similar events that happened to them. Would they be back for sentencing, and would there be more than just those five? That's a good question, and I don't think there's not an answer to that yet, but uh, this is, I think, what will be really interesting to watch with this sentencing is obviously what occurs and what happens to Bill Cosby here. Does he go to prison? Does he go to jail? Does he actually get even any jail time? The judge has a lot of leeway in this, uh, but it'll be interesting to see, uh, and it may be up to the judge to decide how much he wants to hear himself, because he's the one who's going to make the decision. And so, unlike uh, maybe the Larry Nassar thing, where we saw parades of just dozens upon dozens of women coming in to kind of get their day in court, uh, the judge may decide to cut it off himself and say, I've heard enough. So it, it may be very largely up to him as to whether or not he allows, um, you know, more of these women. The prosecution had 19 who were ready and willing to go up and take the stand against Cosby, uh, whether or not we get that many uh, or more or up to that 60 that we know about so far is, is anyone's guess at this point. Mark Remillard, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Good stuff. Thank you very much. All right, coming up next, Tom Brokaw's letter. Oh, boy, did I love this. You know, it's true, the way that people... Why do you hate women? No, 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 you're the one who hates women. No, I hate women comedians. Right. It's like an oxymoron, women comedian, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, You're playing into my game now. I know I am. This is so true, something that Tom Brokaw points out. You can be somebody of ill repute, go to the Washington Post or Variety or whatever and say, Gary Hoffman used to grab my buttocks and they'll print it. They'll print it because that's the Me Too environment we're in now. And that's a smudge on Gary Hoffman's reputation. There's no background. There's no legwork about who, who made this allegation that Gary's going around grabbing ass. But yet, here his reputation is failing, is falling because of it. Yeah, great. Now you're starting something. No. Oh. We'll talk about Tom Brokaw's <laughs> reaction to all of this when we come back. Gary and Shannon will continue. Bye. They never said hello.
charger anywhere in this building. Think about asking one of your producers, hey, I have a charger, Shannon. Do you? Yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah, why are you going all around the building? I do. <laughs> You know. Oh, because I asked you. That's right. I asked you, and you didn't have I one. I usually do have one. I usually keep one there plugged into the but computer. But today you woke up and decided to be unprepared for the day. It was actually last week where I put it in the car and never took it back out. Mm. Uh, Blake, may I use your charger? Oh, sure. Oh, Thank you. Look at that. That was easy. Uh, Tom Brokaw was the big story last week. One of the big stories that we were covering about the new allegations against him. Linda Vester was the woman who accused him of sexual impropriety. Unwanted advancements, I believe, in Washington Post. She also spoke in an interview with Variety magazine. Tom Brokaw, through his network, through NBC, issued a statement of denial to both of those publications. Um, But other than that, they got to go with her version of the story, which makes him seem like an apple. But there's a couple things to remember about this case. And again, I I don't know what happened in the hotel room slash apartment that she's accusing him of making some sort of uh, unwanted advancements against her. But it's her story. It's singular. There are at least 100 women who have worked with and around Tom Brokaw who have signed on to a letter vouching for his character. And that doesn't mean that he didn't do it, but it means that other women who have seen him in professional circumstances say that seems very out of character for him. He wrote a letter uh, to friends and family that had been released early yesterday. And I think he wrote this on uh, Friday specifically. But he wrote, It's 4 a.m. on the first day of my new life as an accused predator in the universe of American journalism. I was ambushed and then perp-walked across the pages of the Washington Post and Variety as an avatar of male misogyny taken to the guillotine, stripped of any honor and achievement I had earned in more than a half century of journalism and citizenship. His version of the story, by the way, is included in this letter. He says Linda Vester was, uh, well, I guess we could go back to, go back to as a, an early beginner in journalism. She, he says, Linda Vester, like others in that category, was eager for advice and camaraderie with senior colleagues. She often sought me out for informal meetings, including the one she describes in the New York hotel room. I should not have gone by, but I did not verbally and physically attack her and suggest an affair and language right out of Pulp Fiction. He writes, she was coy, not frightened, filled with office gossip, including a recent rumor of an affair. As that discussion advanced, she often reminded me she was a Catholic and that she was uncomfortable with my presence. Time. I have, I hope, enough of a of a fear of being accused of anything like this yeah. that if any woman ever said to me, I'm not really comfortable with you being here, I'm gone. You don't, that's not something you repeat, by the way. I'm out. Only because I don't want there to ever be be the appearance of impropriety in the event that something like this ever gets out. So he left, too. He did the same thing. He says, a year or so later, as I passed through London after covering the end of World War II ceremonies in Moscow, I saw her in the office, chatted, and agreed to a drink later. If New York was so traumatic, why a reunion? Good question. She knew a bar, but that by that late hour it was closed, so she suggested her nearby apartment. 
She didn't say, well, no, we don't have anywhere to go. I'll see you tomorrow. He said, again, her hospitality was straightforward with lots of pride in her reporting in the Congo and more questions about New York opportunities. As I remember, he says, she was at one end of a sofa. I was at the other. It was late. I had to been up for 24 hours. As I got up to leave, I may have leaned over for a perfunctory goodnight kiss, but my memory is that it happened at the door on the cheek. No clenching her neck. The move that she so vividly describes is not who I am, not in high school, college, or thereafter. Yeah. But again, you know what, though, Tom Brokaw? You can't be in these situations. Well, there's that. There's that. I mean, and I, as I read through this letter, I said that exact thing to my I wife. I would never invite. I would never invite a colleague to my hotel room. Uh, like, I just don't see that happening. Of, for, oh, all the bars are closed, so it's like what two in the morning? Right. Come to my hotel room for a drink. I would never do that. And you would never accept that invitation. Right. To eh, one well, of our. How about coffee first thing in the morning? Right. I'll see you there. Like it's late. Like what? Are, what are you doing? Um, one of the things that she, that he wrote that she said, sorry, that he wrote that he says she left out in the story was that they ran in. They again ran into her in the hallways. Asked how it was going. She was interested in cable startup. I said I didn't think it was going anywhere. What about Fox, which was just building up? She was interested. Followed me to my office, where while she listened in, I called Roger Ailes. He said, send her over. She got the job. I never heard from her or saw her again. In fact, he says she became a really big fan of Roger Ailes. Yes, hamburger meat Roger Ailes. That was my part. But when he got in trouble on sexual matters, not a peep from this woman who now describes herself as the keeper of the flame for me, too. And he goes on to say, listen, I am not a perfect person. I have made mistakes personally and professionally, but as I write this, it down... In the morning after a drive-by shooting by Vester, the Washington Post, and Variety, I am stunned by the free ride given a woman with a grudge against NBC News, no distinctive credentials or issues, passions, while at Fox. It's true. You shouldn't be able to go try and bring down a a stellar reputation like uh, that of Tom Brokaw just because you've got an alleged story. And if— But you know what the thing is? Is when that surfaced, we didn't buy it. Remember, we were like, eh, this is not, he does not belong in the same conversation as these other guys. But the, but the women who have been victimized, the women who did start up the Me Too movement, like Rose McGowan, I mean, who had to do degrading, horrible things with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. She's the kind of person who I would want to see take this woman out. Right. Uh, and, and show her that, you know, false allegations. How dare or, you use the movement for your own personal gain? Sounds disgusting. Yeah. All right. John Cobalt. Hi. Hi. What do you guys got coming up today? Do you ever get grabby in a hotel room? <laughs> Careful how you answer that. <laughs> no, I don't think I've ever been in a hotel room with that's, a woman see, outside. That's the thing. You don't, I mean, I just, you just don't go. You don't do that. Yeah, I'm, don't I'm, put yourself in that situation. I agree with Mike Pence. Everybody made fun of him for what he said, but he never has dinner alone with a woman other than his wife. Never goes in a hotel room because uh, there only can be trouble. And besides, guys know what they're capable of, so you just you don't want the temptation. Guys know what they're capable. Well, yeah, we're yeah. animals, damn well, it. Yes, so you don't want, you know, you don't want to. Uh... Don't poke the bear. Yeah. All right, that's what I'm trying to what say. Are guys, what are you guys doing today? Is that what you call I, it? I don't know. <laughs> don't. Um, we we we're going up to Ventura. 
on Thursday. And uh, there's going to be a big rally there. We're going to talk with one of the rally organizers uh, right after the 2 o'clock news. So there's going to be a big public event in addition to us doing the show. Excellent. John and Ken, coming up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Stay dry, everybody. Don't poke the bear. Watch for another episode soon of Gary and Shannon.